Welcome. Hi, everyone. Hope that you guys are doing well. This is episode three of Scoot Talk Sports. Can you believe we're at the third episode already? So a big thank you to everyone who's listened, who's tagged along in chat, who has been here for the streams on Twitch when we record, who've retweeted, who've shared anything, or even just sent a kind note. Thank you so, so much for being here. I'm really excited where this is going, and it wouldn't be possible without fantastic guests and great people behind me. So thank you so, so much for being here, guys, with episode three. So without any further ado, let's get set up for today. What do we have on the pod today, on the show? So today we have three guests, which I'm really, really excited about. We have Alexandre, uh, who is a member of Between the Sports, uh, or Between the Sticks from Van Vancouver. He covers the Vancouver Whitecaps, the Canadian men's and women's national teams, as well as the Canadian Premier League and really anything, anything football related. Um, so we're going to have him on first to get checked in a little bit with the Canadian women's team at the Olympics. We'll then be bringing on uh, Maxwell Mulbray from Waterloo United. He's a youth coach uh, for Waterloo United, of course. And we're just going to explore a little bit about his club, uh, how we train and coach youth in this country. And uh, maybe there's ways we can do it better or ways that uh, we're doing a good job now. I'm just really interested in learning about that. Uh, and then the last guest that we have today uh, will be my friend Simon. Into Rosie, you guys may be familiar with him. He's a Twitch streamer and he's an absolute arsenal nut. He, uh, he's been a massive fan of that club for years and years and years. So I'm really, really excited to get him on and talk a little bit about Arsenal. So without any further ado, I think Alexandra is in here. So let's go ahead and bring him in and get started on this first segment here. Alexandra, can you hear me? Hello, Jeremy. I, I can hear you. Can you hear me? <laughs> good. I, yeah, we can hear you good. This is fantastic. Thank you so much for making the time to, to jump in today. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thanks for, for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to, to join the show and, and chat soccer. I always love chatting Canadian soccer, so it's, it's a pleasure to, to be on and chat about all things Canadian soccer this morning. Yeah, thank you very much. And so, um, you know, I, I, this is an opportunity to basically kind of pick your brain a little bit. For those who haven't been part of the show before, I always like to give them a little heads up. You know, I'm not coming at this as an expert. I like to bring in interesting folks, people who spend a lot of time covering things that I want to learn about. So it's it's really great to have you on. Before we jump into a little bit about the Canadian women's team, maybe we could talk a bit about all the different things that you've got going on. I see your 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 Twitter profile is jam packed with a bunch of different things. Tell us about Between the Sticks. What is uh, what's what's that? Is that something you founded? It seems you're the editor in chief of Between the Sticks, Vancouver. Yeah, no, for sure. It's certainly it's a project that uh, started with a, a few pals, I guess, 2019 now, so two years ago. So it's been a been a while. Just covering obviously the local soccer team in Vancouver, where I'm from, the Whitecaps. Uh, started just as, as writing for about that for fun, and then it kind of grew from there. It turned out, okay, let's cover a bit of Canada's national teams. I think in the first year, Canada men's team played a friendly in French Guyana, against French Guyana in Vancouver. It's like, okay, let's let's cover that. And then it just kind of you know grew from there, covering, okay, let's cover some CPL, let's cover... Um, yeah, the, both Canadian men's and women's national teams. So it, it's kind of started as, as that. And through through that, I've got to meet all sorts of wonderful people, say such as yourself in the Canadian soccer community and all sorts of other, uh, you know, people out there writing, phot photographers and 
it's it's certainly been a fun project to to work on and through that i've also started obviously a podcast with with other you know another writer in the vancouver soccer scene so it, it's been certainly fun a fun journey to undertake but it, it just kind of started as that a small idea okay let's write about soccer and it's kind of gone from there yeah, it looks, I mean, it, it, if you guys are wondering where to keep up with this, by the way, I should also throw in a plug here. If you're wanting to follow him on Twitter, it's at BTS Van City for Between the Sticks. And if you're interested in catching him on the podcast that's come out of that as well, it's the third sub pod. So that's third sub pod on Twitter if you guys want to find that out. I also see that it looks like you are also attending Ryerson. Is that something that you're in the middle of doing? Are you uh, in the process of completing? Or are you getting close to the end there? Um Almost there. I mean, officially two years down from that. I mean, uh, so two two years left for your program. I, I did transfer from from SFU in in Vancouver, so I took a took a bit of a, a roundabout route there. But yeah, halfway done the the program now. It's been it's been a good program. It's the sport media program, so it's nice to be focused on sport and and media. All, you know, all the time, kind of sticking in what I, I like to do and I like to cover. So. Yeah, two years down in Ryerson, and uh, excited for for two two to come. It's been it's been a fun journey there so far. It's a great great university, especially for those who want to get into media. It's the school to go to. Yeah, I've only heard fantastic things about Ryerson, and it's it just makes me laugh a little bit because here I am without any education or background whatsoever, and I'm bringing on a professional in a sense to have a little chat. So it makes me laugh a little bit. And I think the last thing that's mentioned in your bio here is you're a member of the North American Soccer Reporters. Can you tell me a little bit about what that is? Yeah, for sure. It's uh, I guess a community of you know reporters all around North America covering you know MLS uh, I guess NWSL even CPL since there's some in the Canadian side and it's just you know it's 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 a group that of, of reporters around so you can talk to people you know have more support from other people you just cause sometimes you forget how big of a community it really is stuck in your say your your city's bubble you, you know all the local you know journalists and and writers and bloggers and podcasters but it's nice to kind of Get a get a wider network, and as part of uh, I guess NASR or North American Soccer Reporters, it does come with some some pretty cool privileges, such as voting for MLS's Player of the Week every week, and then a few other award votes, which is pretty you know surreal to 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 be every week sitting there and voting for for the players a week based on what I, I watched in MLS. So it's nice to be a part of a, a group like that and have the support of colleagues around around north america and in, in, in that regard yeah it, it, you know what it, what i've really noticed and maybe you can tell me whether or not i'm completely off my rocker here but it seems to me like you know soccer football fans in general i've always kind of had tight-knit communities over in north america because you sort of had to to be able to uh find people who are into the same sport it must be the same with reporters and those who cover the game as well that you're always trying to oh you you cover you know, football you're not you're not just talking hockey that's fantastic let's 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 exchange numbers right well, that's it. Anything niche, when it comes down to anything niche, you're always going to find other people, right? That, that's yeah. the that's the beauty of, of a community like that. And the soccer community is very tight-knit, especially stereotypically compared to other sports. Soccer, you know, it gets bashed a lot sometimes. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. So people tend to bond together over that stuff. Like, well, yeah, we like soccer. You know, that's that's okay. We're all we're all kind of close by that. And it's kind of cool. I mean, it'd be nice to have it continue to grow and become a mainstream community, but you can certainly tell that from the start, people, it's always been a kind of a, a tight niche, you know, tight knit community, like you say. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of leads me into the next conversation I wanted to have. Before we get, you know, right into the Canadian women's team, I also wanted to explore a little bit. I, I like to, you know, I think I think in this country especially, there's some unique paths to becoming a fan of the sport. And there's also a, a little bit of stubbornness that's required. Um, living in a country that's, you know, uh, you're swamped with, you know, uh, the NFL, the NHL, the NBA, right? Which are all, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a sports nut, so I'm excited for all of them. But um, you have to really kind of be a little bit stubborn to be, you know, a football or a soccer fan. What, what, like, kind of, what kind of drew you into the game? Were you someone who played from a young age, or, or what really drew you to the sport? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. It's, it's, it's a good conversation to have. I mean, for me personally, I started when I was five. I mean, it's the rite of passage here, as we all joke. You know, we, y'all, y'all start very young, but I also played many other sports growing up: baseball, hockey. Um, those were the two other ones that I did growing up. Um, and then, uh, you know, obviously in high school, I tried as much as I could. I, I even, believe it or not, did a year of ultimate Frisbee. I did some track and field. You know, I did wrestling for a few years. So I've, I've tried a lot of sports, but, you know, soccer and hockey ended up being my main ones. And I actually ended up quitting soccer because, you know, in, in Canada, the one unfortunate thing is the hockey season and soccer season don't overlap very well especially in Vancouver it's you know it's rainy during the winter it's cold it's hard to to want to stick with soccer in the winter so I actually quit when I was younger but then you know when I was 13 14 you just get I got drawn back in you know the world cups were going on and you, you still watch the sport and then you're just kind of like this is fun then why don't I keep doing this and from there it's just been hard to to you know you just realize the more you I've grown older I've just appreciated the sport more and more just you know, club soccer, international soccer. I mean, I've been following since I was younger, but you just get drawn into to all that, and it helps you meet more like-minded people who like the sport. You're like, oh, this is this is a fun time. It's always nice to to gather for all sorts of events that just some other sports don't offer. So I just, I don't know, soccer was always nice because I guess it's a global game, which always helps. It's easy to draw and just make connections, you know, you can talk with anyone about it, like this or that, and fa you know, family members are, are more known about it. I mean, hockey, I still like hockey. I watch hockey a lot, but it can be a bit of a, you know, a niche sport at times for, it's really a North American centric sport. It's not, it doesn't have that same global impact. You're not drawn in every four years for World Cups, every, you know, continental, international club, and just something about that all encompassing nature really just drew me back into to watching. and playing the sport as much as I could. And I think I, I'm, I'm right there with you. It's one of the things that really drew me in. I was a late bloomer, let's say, in terms of, of really getting into soccer here in Canada. But, um, you know, I played when I was a kid, baseball, hockey, just the same way. But what I really enjoy about going to, whether it's a community match, whether it's, you know, a Valor match here in Winnipeg, it, you see a mosaic of the country when you attend a game you get to see a lot of uh you know people bring shirts from wherever their hometowns are wherever their family connections are right and so it's not just valor shirts or canadian shirts you know you see in in the crowd it's a lot of of, of vibrancy and and um variety and it's just like you can feel like you could walk up to anyone and be like oh what club is that like and they'll just barrage <laughs> you barrage you with information about their club right like they've just been waiting to tell somebody about it so that's what i love that's it. It's really just like, like you say, it's, it's mosaic. I mean, I can think of instances where I've traveled and you don't speak the local language. And then the only reason that draws together is one of them, one of you has a ball and you're like, you know, sometimes it even just, you kind of point you're like, ball, like let's play. And they're yeah. like, yeah, exactly. Or even, yeah, just walking around wearing nice kits. I mean, you wear kits. 
I think of one story just from a, like a month ago. I was wearing a, a kit I have from from a team in Ecuador, uh, and then some guy on the bus. He's like, "Kit, where, where's that from?" And I was like, "Ecuador." He's like, "Oh, Ecuador," you know. And it was just a nice conversation stutter. So it is pretty cool how it draws people together for, from all parts of the world. You'd be like, "Oh, that that kid's from Ecuador. My my uncle's from Ecuador." You know, something like that. It, it's always cool to see the the connection. So yeah, no, I really agree with that. It, it's such a it draws people together no matter no matter where you're from. Yeah, exactly. So I appreciate you letting me, you know, talk a little bit about your history as well. It's something that I really enjoy because I think, I think, you know, even as fans, we have a kind of a unique journey ourselves, uh, kind of get to the place we are. So here's, here's the question. Obviously you're a Vancouver Whitecaps fan. Was the Whitecaps your first love? Were they your first club or what was your first club that you kind of fell in love with? Oh boy. I mean, I would say personally, not first. I mean, growing up the Whitecaps, they, they they came in MLS in 2011. I certainly I, I, w I went to games in 2011 and f the years subsequent all the way through. I did go to their. They used to play in the USL. I occasionally went to the USL. So back when they were a, a smaller franchise. So for me, it would have been uh, a mix of say. For me, I was drawn in 2006 World Cup. Uh, just guys like you know Ronaldo Rooney at the time, a six year old. I was drawn into Manchester United. I was like watching them growing up. Uh, then from on my family side, my dad's from a, a town, small town in France. Well, not small, actually pretty big, but certainly a, a forgotten town in France, Rennes. So I also started to like Stade Rennes. We, I think I went to a first game when I was 9, 10, 11. But it's kind of a three-way tie between that. I think maybe Manchester United was the first team I watched. Uh, Whitecaps was certainly a team I, I grew close to because it was local team. You can actually go watch and you know connect with the players if, if that makes sense. It's not yeah. you know from a, a TV screen. Then also, I mean, Rennes, I just uh, always liked them a lot. Is kind of the you know French side. It's a small team. They're very likable. Because even as, as much as I'll admit, as I, I like watching Manchester United, it can be hard to like them at times with, with how it is the big club, etc. So it was kind of nice to have the. You have your local club. You kind of got the club you've already support, always supported, and you're not you're never going to change that. And then you've got okay, the you know the team like Hen, which is, is is a team I've drawn, I've gotten closer to as I've gotten older, just because you appreciate how cool it is a club like you know like them, a bit smaller, what they've gone through. I mean, one example last year they made it to the Champions League for the first time, and I mean I've watched other, countless other clubs in the Champions. I've watched Man Manchester United in the Champions League. It doesn't feel as special, you know, especially the group stages. They play and you're like, okay, they need to win. Whereas with Han, it was just they're in the group stages and you're so happy. It was like a big moment because everyone for them was such a big deal in the town. So I'd say between those three, it certainly it depends on, I guess, on the day who's playing, whatnot. <laughs> and, but but history-wise, it started without, with Manchester United first, surprisingly, I guess, to, to most people, I'm sure. Yeah, you know, maybe maybe surprising to to people over the pond, but you know what? As a as a Canadian, I don't think it's that unusual to have somebody jump right into a big club because the exposure of you know, like growing up here, you know, it was World Cups, it was some of the Euros, it was some of the only really the big tournaments that I was able to see on TV, right? So you were drawn into what you could see in a sense, right? There's a good comment in the chat here. Uh, the question is, what Ecuadorian club was it? On that ah, that's, a, that's a very good question. It's actually Independiente del Valle. So it's uh, actually a club with surprisingly a bit of history. Pretty cool. I mean, 
uh, I just got, I was drawn in because I went to, to Ecuador on, on it was a, a school trip a few years ago and we went to the, this national store, Marathon, you know, it's their supplier for most of the clubs um, for the national team and they also sold other kits and then I was there with a few friends are like, let's get some Ecuador kits. Like we got, you know, it's one of our last days, you got some, you know, leftover money, like, okay, let's spend our money on some kits. We all got Ecuador jersey, so I do have a national team jersey hanging around in the closet somewhere. But I was looking, and it's just Independiente has these pink kits, just phenomenal, just so nice. And I'm like, I've always wanted a pink kit. Let's buy a pink kit. So I ended up buying a pink kit. So it is very eye-catching. I don't blame people when I wear it. I actually, of the kits I, I wear, it's probably the one that gets the most reaction because it's pink. Um, it's got some really funny sponsors, like right on the back, there's KFC, which is probably one of the weirdest sponsors I've seen <laughs> on a Jersey and that, that people are like KFC, why is it KFC on the Jersey? And it's always a good conversation starter. So yeah, it's Independiente del Valle. They won the, uh, Sudamericana. So I guess equivalent of kind of Europa league or CONCACAF league in South America, they made the final of the Libertadores in 2017. So they've actually got some decent history for a club. I think it's from Tena in Ecuador, which is a, a smaller smaller town, but they've got great history nonetheless. I love it. I love it. These, these are the story. Like, as somebody who's obviously a little bit of a football manager nerd, you always try and find these like clubs and countries that are outside of you know the the norm or the mainstream. I guess would be a better way of saying it. And that's one that I think is uh, you know if there's any FM uh, players watching, there's one that you need to, to snag as a good save idea. Well, that's it. I'm, I'm I'm all for for that. I mean, one of my I guess side hobbies, so so to speak, is I, I collect kits. I mean, but you know, I don't necessarily. Obviously, as a student, it's hard to, to see. If I see every kit I, I want and I'd buy it, I'd be broken in five minutes. So <laughs> I, I try to collect kits from, you know, thrifting and, and, and other sources. And I, I've tried, I try my best to find some really obscure kits as well. And for example, my, you know, if friends, family ever go traveling, just try to get as many obscure kits. I can just think of, of my collect, you know, the stuff in my collection, some of the funny things you find, like you got third division French kits. I mean, I got you know a kit from Bangkok FC. I mean, I, who knows? Awesome. I don't know. I don't know anything about <laughs> Bangkok FC, but I got a kit. So for me, I lo I love kits. I think it's it's a good way to to you know just have fun with it, find cool cool things, and you know every every kit I guess has a story. So it's it's a pretty pretty good fun thing to do that that I do in my kind of my spare time, so to speak. And I, there's a comment here from the chat, uh, Offside Twice, who's a, a Forge supporter. He's, uh, he's a, that's why I'm broke. He's, he, he's <laughs> often sending me pictures of, hey, I'm, all, I'm on a thrift run. We'll see what I can find today. So it's, uh, it's definitely not the only one who's on that hunt. Once so, I can synthesize with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I, I know that ever since I've had, uh, we had a little one about a year ago, it's been a little bit harder for me to justify the need to go out and get some more kits. <laughs> Unless, of course, they're for him. In which case, if they're a baby-sized kit, suddenly that's okay every single time right now. So I'm trying to take advantage of that. Last question about you before we jump into the team. You've, you've obviously got involved in, in covering. You want to become, you know, it looks sounds to me like you're, you're on the, the path uh, to becoming a you know a lifelong journalist and follower of, of of the sport, what got you involved or wanting to take that step from a fan to becoming somebody who's involved on a day to day basis and and ideally making it part of your your career? I mean, it's a good question. I, I feel like certainly most people. Uh, I guess you talk to people and might say my program obviously similar spots to me. 
I don't know. I, I feel like I, I had my moment almost a- accidentally. I've always, you know, growing up, I'm like, okay, I want to, you know, maybe I want to play or I want to do this. I never thought, okay, I mean, like, eventually I'll be there. I didn't think of, okay, how am I going to take the steps to 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 do that? And then, you know, all of a sudden we decided to to create, uh, you know, between the sticks. And then all of a sudden I was on the front lines covering kind of the whitecaps. And I was like, oh, this is actually kind of fun. I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm growing it within this. Let's just keep it going and, and, and go from there and, and, and try to just, you know, learn from with, within that. So I feel like it was kind of, you know, it, it was a moment. I, I didn't really say set out, I guess in my head, I'm like, one day, okay, you want to be a journalist. But say when I started Between the Sticks, it's more like I'm bored. I watch the Whitecaps all the time and I have a lot of thoughts on, on how the team's playing, how the team's run. Let's just put it in, in a format and, and see if you know, people read it and then you're like, okay, you know what? I'm actually having fun with this. Okay. Let's just uh, let's apply for access to the team. If you get it, so be it. You get access to the team. You're like, okay, you can, you know, cover the team. And it just kind of, I guess, goes from there. So I'd say for me, I wasn't sitting there thinking, okay, I have this grandstand plan. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I was just kind of going with the flow. All of a sudden it's happened. Like, oh, okay. Like, Okay, right now we can let's let's go to Canada game. Oh, okay, we can cover a Canada game. I've always wanted to cover a Canada game. Covering CPL and next, you know, you're kind of, you know, you, so to speak, you got your your feet in the the, the weeds. You're 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 in deep. You're you're trying to yep. to cover as much as you can. So certainly something that came up by I'd say I guess accident, but it's certainly something I don't regret. It's something that I've had a lot of fun with. But I can't sit there and say I had a moment where I pinpointed. Okay, I'm going to do this, and this is this is what I'm going to do to get there. Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's fantastic seeing you and so many other, it seems to me like there's a generation coming up, just like we're seeing this youth generation with, with the men's team. I think there's also a, uh, you know, a growing appetite for more and more soccer stories, soccer coverage, especially soccer coverage that isn't necessarily, you know, connected to the league, that people want to have stories that maybe people are feeling a little bit... Um, I don't know if the word uncomfortable is right, but we need to, to dive into some of those stories that, you know, like the, like the labor issues we're seeing in the Canadian Premier League, for example. That's not something one soccer is probably too excited to cover. And that's not me criticizing. It's just the natural, when you have that relationship, there's a natural hesitation to cover certain things, right? So, yeah. Uh, but we're not going to get into that today. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, Canadian women's national team. So they're at the Olympics. Uh, we've played one game and we drew with Japan 1-1. So for those who don't know, um, the, the Canadian women's team has traditionally had more success in terms of the world rankings. There's obviously a smaller uh, number of elite countries in the women's side, but uh, Canadian women's are a legitimate medal shot. And in terms of fans we always consider them a legitimate medal shot is that something fair to say when we were coming into this tournament do you think i mean i think it's it's always fair to, to have i mean one part of the olympics that helps teams like canada is that the format with only 12 teams there's not as many european teams and right now there's a huge i mean europe in terms of, of the women's game is, is is really just killing it right now they've got all sorts of domestic leagues coming up all within the last five to 10 years, so many countries have, have invested. I think, for example, a country like Spain, five, 10 years ago, they they were nobodies in the women's game. They had zero investment. You know, they barely had a team. And then they're like, okay, we have all this fantastic infrastructure. Let's create a league within five to 10 years. They, they're making quarterfinals of, of, of the World Cup. So, 
I think it, what, what does help for the Olympics is that it's very, it's only 12 teams. There's only two or three European teams. So like there's no France, for example, and they're, they're a, a superpower uh, in, in the world's game. But uh, even just from a pure talent standpoint, Canada on their day can compete with any, any really any team in the world. I, I think they've got the talent. They've got the defensive ability. For Canada, it really just comes down to on their day, do they get enough goals to, to, to win? So I think there's no reason why you look at this Canadian team and think, okay, they cannot medal if, if the circumstances go right. I'm not sitting there thinking, okay, they're runaway favorites like, like, like you might with some teams. It's not saying, okay, it's going to be easy for them. But I, I'd say certainly if you're going to make bets amongst teams, I'd put them in your top four, top five, and that, that's what makes them medal threats, really. Plus with, with these sorts of tournaments, you never know how the draw is going to go out. Just say, you know, it's it's too early. You see the U.S., the favorites by a, a long shot, they lose their opening game. Well, if they, you know, continue their struggles, they get put on one side of the bracket, one side of the bracket gets, you know, stacked, all of a sudden things things do align in the favor. So for, from that perspective, anything is possible. But from Canada's perspective, there's no team in that tournament I look and I'm thinking, okay, I'd be particularly, you know, I, I'm sitting there thinking this is impossible. I think every game Canada has a shot to win and it's just going to come down to, to execution, going to come down to their players being at their best but you just look at some of the talent in that lineup but uh, and you you can't help but wonder okay they have what it takes just just can they finally get over that hump because if anything it's psychological it, it's okay being that big team winning that big game showing up and being okay yes we can win this game and that's really the the difference between a Canada and say some of the other teams that they need to get to is just finding that mentality of knowing they have the talent and just getting out on the field and, and, and putting it to, to use and applying that. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things I think that we've always kind of felt like there's a sort of, I, I don't know what you're saying, a hump, but there's a little bit of a, a breakthrough that needs to happen to really embrace that feeling of, we are a top female soccer nation. We are able to compete with anyone in the world when we're on our, on our game. Right. That being said, do you think that the Japan, so that we drew, drew Japan 1-1 in a very early game, which I know many people were up early for, and there's another one to, tonight uh, or tomorrow morning, depending on how you're planning on seeing it. Um, does the Japan draw, is that kind of epitomize the struggle to get as many goals they need to, to win the game? Or was there anything you saw in there that that made you hopeful that they're they're in the right same frame of mind for this tournament? I mean, if you talk about getting over the hump, Japan's a perfect example of that. They're not ranked as high. I think they're ninth in the current rankings. Obviously, former champions, uh, World Cup champions, very good team, but they're they're an aging team. They're not the Japan of old, but, you know, it kind of shows that, you know, psychologically on paper, you look at this Canadian team, you think, okay, they match up very well. They should win that game, but... You know, it just shows that psychologically some of these teams are hard to beat. They're well-drilled, even if they don't have the same talent. So I think I look at that Japan team. It's the kind of hurdles you need to get over. And to be fair, I did see some progress. I mean, we have to remember at the end of 2019, Canada played a friendly against Japan ahead of 2020 Olympic qualifiers, a kind of a preparation. They lost 4 nothing, and they played a pretty good lineup, and they just looked they didn't look good. They, Japan outplayed them completely. So for Canada to come out, to go up one nothing, to grab a point, those are all very positive signs. I mean, yes, they should have had three points and be in the driver's seat in terms of setting themselves up. 
But a point against a good team in an opening game is never bad in a tournament. It's better than coming out with the loss and having to to build from there. But I think Japan's exactly the kind of team that psychologically, if you want to beat a, win a tournament, you have to start finding a way to beat teams like like that. Really, the the tier one opposition. I mean, Canada. There was the stat that before this year, when they beat England two uh, 0 in that friendly in April, they hadn't beat a tier one, which. I think is def- officially defined as top 15 so then beat a top 15 team in three years uh, in like over 10 to 15 games against tier one opposition too. It wasn't a small sample size. They'd always lose or, 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 or draw. So it's really for, for me, you look at that Canadian team, it's going to be taking that next step against, against tier one opposition. So against Japan, they showed some good signs. I think scoring early goal is always huge. Uh, it would have been nice to see them maybe build off that and grab a second. And I think defensively, they defended very, you know, very well for, for a good chunk of the game. Japan wasn't getting a sniff, but, you know, they just have to find a way. If you get a lead, you need to close it down. I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory, but you just, you can't give up a goal like they gave up, which was you know, you'd almost be happy if, you, if you've given up a worldie of a goal or just a goal that you're sitting there like you could do nothing about. But for Canada to get beaten by a long ball, by, you know, a, a Japanese team that isn't particularly physical. They're not a team that relies on the line, the long ball, but Canada just couldn't really handle one simple long ball, one shot where the goalkeeper is, you know, your goalkeeper is kind of off center. And then all of a sudden you're, you're down and you, you kind of feel frustrated because it's like, okay, they defended well up to that point, but they just... They gave a goal that you can't really give up if you if you want to win games. So I think though there's plenty of learning lessons. They can look at that game and be like, okay, that, that first 45 minutes, you get that early goal. You're controlling possession. You're controlling the game. And then build off of that. Get more chances. Be more aggressive in the final third. Get your shots off. And then more importantly, defensively, they're one of the best defensive teams in the world for a reason. You've got such talent like Kadisha Buchanan, Shalina Zadorsky, Vanessa Gilles. That's a you know, trio of center backs you'd put up against anyone, well, you just have to avoid those kinds of mistakes. It was uncharacteristic of them, and hopefully they can clean that up in, in future games. Because if they do, you like their chances. Yeah, I think I think I think you're you're right. It, it's one of those things where if they'd had a loss, I think we would have been talking in a much different tone. Whereas it's like, okay, we got a draw. There's things we can work on. There's things that they can do. Um, coming out of that game, there was a little bit of injury concern around Stephanie uh, Lebet. I'm probably gonna screw up her name. Is it Lebet? Or- I think it's Lebet. Yeah, I think it's Lebet. If I'm not mistaken. But it sounds to me like she's going to be he- at least available for the game. Do you think that she gets the start in the next game against uh, Chile? Or is she she going to be... Um, is there a concern with who's up next? Or do we have a pretty consistent um, um, backup choice as well? I mean, personally, I was already kind of on the fence of thinking I'd rotate her anyways. Had she gone the full 90? I think any sort of doubt you know, let her rest. I think it was a rib injury. So for those who've ever had rib injuries, even just a, a bruised rib is, is, you know, excruciating pain. So no reason to to push beyond that if you don't need to. I think Kaylin Sheridan is a very, very good goalkeeper and people were calling for her to be the number one even before this tournament for a reason. I think you look at that goal she conceded against Japan. Yes, it's very uncharacteristic one that she probably wants back. But you know, coming into a game cold when your starters come down with an injury, it's never easy for a goalkeeper to to come into. So I think I'm confident if Sheridan or LeBay are, are in, in goal. So if you're Canada, you don't have to worry. I think right now, 
from what we saw, I think LeBay's the number one just based on experience and, and talent. Even if the talent between her and, and Sheridan isn't that different, I think just having that experience was huge. To, to the, just think of that 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 whole sequence. You give up a very bad penalty. Very, you know, it was. If, if we're going to be honest, it was a terrible penalty to give away. You're up one nothing. Japan's not getting any momentum to have your goalkeeper clean out the striker like that unnecessarily. It's terrible. But to step up save the penalty calmly despite really having an injury it's that sort of experience that that really canada you know is ha- is lucky to, to have it in goal so i think we're going to see a lot of i think that kind of cemented LeBay as the long-term starter uh for the rest of this tournament but if, if she's unable to play sheridan she has a chance to cement herself as well that, that discussion can certainly change in, in in one in one game in one moment and hopefully for sheridan's sake she can have that moment against Chile because I know she's a good goalkeeper. I think once LeBay hangs up the gloves, it's her net really to, to lose until, you know, she gets someone like Riley Foster emerges or something like that. So I'm, I'm very confident in Sharon. I think she can play well against a Chile team that looked a lot better than I expected them to against Great Britain. But uh, I think, you know, just got to rest LeBay for now. It's going to be huge to see if Sheridan can take that step up in this game. 300 caps. For Christine Sinclair, uh, one of one of uh, if not the greatest female player uh, in the history of the game, uh, and we're not just saying that because we're patting ourselves on the back. The numbers, the numbers back it up. Do you think that she gets the respect and the attention that she deserves as an athlete? Oh boy, so it's a loaded question. It's a tough one. I mean. <laughs> For example, I think not long ago, ESPN did their top 50 of of, of all players in the world uh, on the women's game. And I don't think Sinclair made the top 50 like right now, which obviously historically you make that list. She's in there, but that gives an idea that even now she's, she's still plugging away. She's scoring at a, you know, a goal every two games rate for, for, for Portland, which is an elite rate for any striker, let alone one who's 38 and has been playing for, you know, at the top level, as long as she has, she doesn't even get the respect now. And I just, I, you know, I guess historically it really, I'd say for, for what she's done, she doesn't necessarily get the respect that, that she necessarily deserves. And I think that's part of, okay, you're, you're Canadian. It's, you know, a bit of a forgotten team at times. It's not say the U S where it's all well, you know, very well known or even in, in, in Europe. So yeah, I think, you, you know, someone like Christine Sinclair, even from within Canada, I don't think Canada realizes how lucky they, they are to have someone like her be not only just a top player. I mean, she's obviously a fantastic player, 187 international goals, most by any player, you know, men or women internationally, 300 caps for her country. She's been playing since she was, I think, 16. She made her debut for Canada. I think she's been to five World Cups now, four Olympics. Like, she's done it all. But more importantly, she's a great person, great role model. People, you know, on the Canadian team who've played with her speak so highly with how competitive, how, you know, just, you know, in good she is in the community. Canada doesn't real, you know, realize how, how lucky they are to have a legend like that in, in front of our very eyes. And I think... She, She'll be someone that when she's gone, a lot of people will really be like, oh, like she's not here anymore. We, we Maybe we didn't appreciate her uh, enough for, for how she is. I think of just, for example, in Vancouver, where I am, in Burnaby, they recently renamed one of the fields, the Christine Sinclair Field. And in my head, I'm like, what took so long? She's been a legend for, you know, for, for so long. And it, it really shows that even then, that's her hometown. And I'm sure there's going to, when she retires, there's going to be a whole swath of, Oh, you know, Christine's no longer here. Maybe we 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 gotta appreciate her. So I'll agree. She doesn't necessarily get the respect 
a legend of her stature certainly deserves, but she just still does get a, a lot of, uh, you know, I think everyone within the soccer community has full full respect for, for her. So I think it's more, you know, kind of outside the community, not realizing that Canada has a legend like many not seen before before her in, in the sporting community as a whole. Yeah, and I think you've nailed it right on the head. It's almost an awareness thing because it's once you've become aware of Christine and 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 what she's done, not only for her own personal career but for the country, it's very hard for you anyone to not look at her and go, "Wow, like what an athlete, what a person, what a what a what a what a person to look up to." Right? Um, I think I think you're right though. I think in 10, 20 years, people will be looking back and looking at these records and going wow, these are not going to be touched. Like, these aren't going to be touched for a long time, especially as you see the development of the women's game. You know, more leagues in Europe, like you mentioned, hopefully development of a of a Canadian league at some point or more NWSL, whatever it ends up being, right? There needs to be that kind of healthy ecosystem of professional women's sport. And I think in, as, as more and more women play and there's more and more opportunities to play professionally, you know, those 300 caps is a, is a, it's a, it's a, it's a marker that is, quite it feels like it might be something it takes a long time to happen because you're not going to see a lot of those players who come in at 16 and play their entire career there's going to be more players more athletes more women competing for those spots would you agree no that, that, that that's exactly it i think think the game's only growing and it's gonna you know things are gonna change in in the long term and we're gonna see more growth and i think that's gonna be huge to have just more platforms for players to 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 play and express themselves and be part of the the pro game and i think we're we're seeing that just we could see for example for canada they need a women's league i mean the fact they've had a good team without a women's league really is shows how much of anomaly that is and, and internationally you look at all these countries mexico's got taken huge strides cuz they started a liga mx uh, you know, on the women's side, it just is, is fantastic. They draw some big crowds for their soccer is ingrained in the culture. You look in South America, you hear all these stories. Chile started a, a domestic league. Argentina started a domestic league. They're starting a Libertadores where all these things are, are, are drawing together. And I think there what they've been doing is like they've been tying it into to the men's and women's side. They're like it's all one sport. It's one club. And the support there has been staggering. You look in Europe, same thing. They, you know, Spain is the one example I used earlier. Uh, you know, France got one of the best leagues, England, and it makes a difference. So the fact that Canada's become a good team on the women's stage without a, a, a domestic league is really it's a, it's an anomaly. It's a, and they need to change that to offer more opportunities, more chances to to be you know, the next Sinclair. Because there's a lot of people out there who want to be the next Sinclair, but then they grow up and they're like, okay. It's not necessarily financially viable for me. It's going to be a grind. You know, where do I play? I have to, you know, if I want to have a chance, I have to travel to to this when I'm 17 and I don't want to, you know, some obviously some players are going to make that jump. You, you got players like, okay, they'll they'll travel, you know, they'll go to college at 18. They'll do this. They'll, they'll go to Europe at 18. And it's a tough sacrifice to make. So it'd be nice to, to offer, you know, platforms for someone who who, who has the, the drive, the talent to be, you know the next Sinclair, the next who, who, whoever else in the in the world's game she wants to be, but doesn't want to have to to go across the country at eighteen or across the the world at eighteen to to do that. And I think it it just offers more opportunities for people to 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 play. And it's it's a cycle. It kind of gives the more teams there are, more fans go watch, the more people get inspired, and it can only be a good thing for this country. So 
I, I, they, they need to invest in it. They need to invest in it at some point because it'll have such good long-term ramifications for, for the sport and the country as a whole. Totally agree. I mean, one thing you, you kind of spoke to a little bit there was the connection to the club and keeping it the same so that, you know, you have a, you know, in, in France, you have a PSG men's team, you have a PSG, you know, uh, women's team, right? You're not, you're not starting a new franchise. You're not trying to create fans and a whole new fan base where one doesn't exist. You're actually tapping into a community that already exists. I'd love to see whether or not it's the Canadian Premier League or another league. I'd love to see a Valor, you know, female team and, uh, and go against a Forge female team, right? And still have those same kind of battles. It would be, it, it's an easy step instead of going, okay, we need to buy an NWSL team. We need to rebrand this team. We need to create a new team. It would be cool to be able to tap in on those existing um, kind of club allegiances. Um, Coming up for Canada, we obviously play Chile next. What's the things to watch for in that game, in your in your opinion? What what's what's got you worried about Chile? Is there anything you, that's worrying about Chile? And what does Canada need to do against uh, the whatever they're playing with this year? I think Chile is is for sure. It's a it, you know I, I I feel like calling it a trap game is a bit disingenuous to Chile because they're so much better than that. But from Canada perspective, it it's a trap game, a hundred percent. Uh, Chile ranked, uh, I think they're 30 something in the world, so they're a lot lower compared to the other teams in the group, say GB, which basically comprised of England, so they're ranked around sixth. Japan ranked ninth. You kind of see Chile like, okay, this is a, a three points, you can put it on the board. As Great Britain learned, that is not the case. From any, if anything, I watched the first half of that game, Chile were the better team, but you know, Great Britain, they got the goal they needed, they were professional about their performance. Canada needs to do the same because. For, for me with Chile, it starts with one person, really. Christine Endler in goal. She played, played for P Paris Saint-Germain this year. Obviously, PSG had a huge year. Uh, knocked out Lyon in the Champions League. Made the semifinals. Won the league for the first time in 15 years. Breaking Lyon's ridiculous reign, really, where they, they won 15 years in a row, which is unheard of, but shows how good Lyon is. Well, Endler was the you know a big part of that in goal for PSG, saving them. And I think she's leaving this year. Uh, to find a new club who hasn't been announced yet. But in terms of goalkeepers, she is probably the number one goalkeeper in the world. So for Canada, a Canadian team, people are already asking you questions. Okay, where are the goals coming from? It's not going to be an easy way to bust a slump or to have that breakthrough when you're first facing the number one goalkeeper in the world. And from there, this Chilean side is very, very organized. I think like 80 or 90% of their squad all play in the Chilean league. So they're very familiar with each other. They play very cohesively. For, you know, I saw them put, put together some very good passing moves. Uh, Attacking-wise, Canada's defense should be able to take care of the Chilean threat. I, I, you know, For them, their issues came more in the final third. They defended well. They got up the field. They just, in the final third, the touch would let them down. They weren't able to get any shots that would test. Uh, it was Karen Bardsley in, in goal for, for Great Britain. So uh, for Canada, I find it hard to imagine they'll concede a goal. But it certainly has a nil-nil written all over. And that's not a good thing for Canada. Because if you draw this game, you're sitting at two points from two games. You're facing a must-win against Great Britain. I guess if you draw, you'll finish with three points, which uh, should be enough to... Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, should be enough to get through as a third-place team. But if you, you go through as a third-place team, your draw just gets so hard for for the rest of the, the, the way. So if you win this game against Chile, you got four points. 
you can go into that Great Britain game with a little less pressure. Think, okay, yes, you need to win or, or draw to put yourself in good position. But you're not thinking like we must win or we're probably going to either go home or, or have a you know a, a harder path to through the knockout round. So I think this Chilean team is going to be a very good test for Canada. You know, it's it, it's it's a game you don't envy for them because it's one where you lose. And it's like oh, Canada's. You know they're not they're not as good as we thought. They're this, they're that, and that that would be completely unfair to Chile, who are a fantastic team. But it's one where you need to win. You should win. It's a must win, but it won't be very easy to win. So it's really one of those those famous trap games. It'd be you know damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of kind of you know team for for Canada. So I have full confidence they'll go out there and win. I think if I had to make a prediction, I'm thinking one or two nil. But it's one that easily could end up nil nil, and then there's a lot more questions and answers. Yeah, it, it sounds to me like, you know, we're not underlying, underlining uh, must win, but it certainly is. Uh, it's 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 it would make your path a lot easier from what you're saying if to to, to go into that Great Britain game and not have a, a situation where you're like, we need to get a point from this game or we're really in trouble. Um, well, that's, no, that, that's it. I was going to say with, with Great Britain, I mean, Canada saw it. They played England, really, you know, for those unfamiliar with Great Britain you know it's it's such a strange system it's funny how like it still works like that for the olympics like independently england and scotland and northern ireland and wales are all independent national teams but obviously as they still fall under the great britain umbrella for the olympics there are, if one of the teams qualify they qualify as great britain for the olympics uh, but england was a team that qualified so they got their head coach they picked 19 of the 22 players are English. There's one Welsh player and two Scottish players. So not even a Northern Irish player. So it's essentially England for, for those unfamiliar with Great Britain. And then very good team. Ranked six in the world. Canada beat them this year, as I mentioned earlier. Huge result. But Canada in that game was a friendly. They scored first. You know, they, they kind of got to dictate the game. And I think they have a chance against Great Britain if you dictate the game. But the problem is, if you had in that game needing a win, you you push up a little higher. You England has so much, you know, talent, speed, goal scoring ability on the counter. You, you open yourself up to, to to potentially, you know, giving away some goals. So that's why I just adding to that, it's so important that they head into that England game set up to to think, okay, we don't need to chase a win. Obviously, you're going to chase one, but you don't need to because from that point on in the knockout stages. You, you never need to chase a, a win. You can you can game plan like that. So if you're Canada, you just need to make sure you get to the knockout stages. But uh, you want to avoid those must-win games because they're, they're always they're always dangerous to to have in the group stages where you're like, okay, we need a win. We open ourselves up, and all of a sudden, they, it's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, and it, it's it's interesting actually. I didn't realize that that's how the qualifying worked for Great Britain in the in 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 the Olympics. It's very interesting to me that. No matter which one would qualify, they end up going having to go in. It just they just get some more, I guess, oomph in picking the team, right? It, it's that's very unique. Do you think that that like that that must be a little bit weird for for the players even as you're playing for qualification? Say if you're you're Wales or Scotland, you get qualification, you still may not have your full team there. It's still going to be kind of a pick of. That's it's such an odd thing. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. I mean. It, it's it's not as big of a thing for England. They're a huge power. If anything, I feel like, yeah, it's weird for them because they qualify. They're like, okay, they're probably like, why do we have to bring on some of these people that aren't even part of, you know, the, the team? So, first of all, I wonder what that dynamic is like in that dress here and welcome. Like, okay, these are your enemies, so to speak, rival countries. Like, England, Scotland isn't exactly the friendliest rivalry. And you're, you're welcoming Scottish players into the into the dressing room. But 
I guess that's just, you know, it also must be strange to you, you spend all the time in the English flag and then for a, a month you have to represent the, the Great Britain flag. I'm always curious to see what happens if Great Britain wins. What's that atmosphere going to be like if they were to win a bronze or a silver or, or a gold medal? But uh, I guess it does, like you say, it has some advantages. The fact that the national team coach essentially can pick like all the mercenaries, so to speak, she wants from the other team. Like, okay, you need a good midfielder from Scotland. They've got some of the best. Okay, let's 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 load up on that. Welsh players, Northern Northern Ireland. But it, yeah, it's it's a very strange dynamic. I just mean, imagine if Canada and the U.S. for some reason were a unified country, and they, one of them makes, it, and you're like, okay, let's half and half with the U.S. for a national team. You kind of be like, okay, that's a bit of a a strange feeling considering the rivalries between the. The two teams but i guess we'll, we'll we'll chalk that up as one of the the unique aspects of, of, of olympics uh, you know olympics that for some reason they still classify great britain as its own country and it leads to some very awkward i guess teams like like this this great britain side i mean that's it's it, it just something that i i hadn't realized and i'm sure i'm not the only one but it, it, that's uh it's just interesting it's just one of those unique kind of wrinkles to to the to the sports and especially a tournament like the olympics um before before we even finish off with the Olympics, what is some of, what are some of the players that you're watching at this tournament? Not just on Canada, but on any team. Like, what if if a fan hasn't watched a lot of women's soccer, wants to get involved and watch a little bit of Olympics? What are the players that they should be looking for? Even the matchups that you're you're really intrigued in. Oh boy! I mean, this is this is a good question. I uh, will certainly see if I can. I, I might need to to double check just some names here, uh, but I'll, I'll start with some of those off the top of my head. I mean, to start, you know, you obviously we'll we'll avoid Canada since I, you know, unless you want, we could mention a few can, Canadian players. I mean, of course, of course, you know, obviously Christine Sinclair. I, you know, legend in motion. Always nice to see, you know, a legend right, right. You know, some of the last chapters of their story. Ashley Lawrence, one of the best fullbacks in the world. Kadisha Buchanan, one of the best center backs in the world. Uh, you know, Janine Becky on her day, she can be one of the best wingers in the world. Those are three players. Jesse Fleming, also one of the great next midfielders in the world. If you want five players to watch from Canada, I'd give you those five. So keep an eye out on on them. I mean, shifting otherwise just in the group christine endler is you know in, in goal for chile can she help chile get a win um you know she's she's it's a storyline worth watching against great britain she made some fantastic saves so for for that for chile to have a player of her stature i mean even going to japan uh i think if i remember correctly it was mana iwabuchi from arsenal who scored the goal She's always been been someone I've kept, you know kept my eye on from when she's played Canada. She always seems to to score. So obviously a very talented player there. Just going around. I mean, Great Britain's got Lucy Bronze, who as a you know unique story as a fullback. I think she either won or was a runner up for the Ballon d'Or just two years ago. Just to give you an idea of how good of a talent she is. Some like Ellen White up front scored a brace. She scores for fun playing for Manchester City, and she won the. Uh, won the Golden Boot or was second in the Golden Boot race at the World Cup. And that's just within Canada's group. I mean, you go to the other group. I think a Netherlands, Zam uh, Zambia. I mean, what a story that was. Zambia yeah. making their first ever appearance at a, at a world, uh, at Olympic or World Cup. Obviously, they're against the fourth-ranked Dutch. For them, they're just happy to be there. They lose 10-3. You know, it's a tough result. They're playing Vivian Medema. I mean, first of all, if you want a name to watch out, Medema, she's only 23 
I think she already has 90 international goals or something obscene. Like she has a rate of nearly a goal every game for her country. Play and she plays for Arsenal. Well, she scored four goals. No, no surprise there. She's a machine. But on the other side, on Zambia, Barbara Banda, uh, she, she's just 21. So she's a 2000 born, just like myself, just for some perspective. She went out and scored a hat trick for Zambia against one of the best teams in the world, despite losing 10-3. She's obviously a very special player and one I wasn't very aware of before this tournament, but I'll keep an eye out for now if maybe she gets a big move to a club. I mean, scoring a hat trick for, for your team in their first ever international game. What a story. I mean, just going down the list. You got the U.S. They're just their box office TV. Obviously, they they lost against Sweden, but even then, this the talent. Even you could see it in the game. They played awful, and the, you still just Rose Lavelle on her day is just a fantastic player. Alex Morgan, you know, you, you go down the list. Christian Press, Tobin Heath. They they're they're a very very deep squad. You know, you go over to Sweden. No, they're they're no slouches either. I mean, they've got a lot of players uh, playing for Real Madrid. I'm just gonna confirm if I can get some of the names for for Sweden I might just I don't want to mix up any names there's a free Alessani is the one I think of uh, she was playing number 10 she plays for Real Madrid and they have I think it was I want to say Jakobsen was the right back she was also very good and causing all sorts of problems and then the the striker the name also it does slip my mind so I, I, I apologize for, for that but she scored a brace against the US and looked very good uh, and, and I mean, just going down the list, there's still so, so much talent otherwise. But uh, yeah, I, uh, Brazil, obviously, how could I forget Brazil? Dabinha is fantastic player. She a winger. She She's very tricky. She can get, you know, she's very good at getting shots off. Obviously, a legend in Marta, you know, won Ballon d'Or multiple times. Fantastic player as well. There's just you, there's a lot of talent on display in this tournament. So, you know, all, all to say, I mean, it's, it's the weird thing about the Olympics, again, only three European teams, two European teams. You're, you're missing your, like, say, your, your France's, your Spain's, your Germany's. But despite that, there's a lot of hidden talent in the these, you know, North American, South American, even African teams, as we're seeing. Very, you know, you know, Africa, for example, lots of hotbed. You know, it's a hotbed for for up and coming women's teams, and we're going to see more stories like Zambia as more federations invest i think a cameroon at the last world cup they were full value for their money nearly pulled off some some big upsets asia as well always been very you know active participants in the women's game so there's a, there's a lot of talent and then basically i'd say if you're up especially if you're on the east coast west coast whatever your reason if you're up turn on a game even if it's not canada you you won't regret it the talent display is is phenomenal and there's always in any given game you're going to see a top player and in some cases some teams 11 top players on the field at any given time yeah i know i put you on the spot there with like can you just tell me everything about all the players at once but really appreciate your your, your knowledge is, is incredible so i really appreciate it <laughs> Thanks. before we before before we leave i'd love i'd love for you to share with us what you're working on right now where people can get a hold of you um if people are wanting to to follow you so we talked a bit about your twitter so um, where can people follow your, your personal Twitter, not uh, between, the, between the sticks? Yeah, I mean, it's at Alex Gongeruzic for those. Uh, I think the spelling, my name's at the top left of my bar, if I'm not mistaken. At least that's the view I have here. So I, if the viewers have that, that's how you can find me at Alex Gongeruzic, all one word, no hyphen. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much where all my stuff is. You can find, I, I retweet most of the stuff I do anyways from other platforms. Obviously, I got the third sub pod our podcast on uh, the white caps mainly but also canadian soccer 
uh, CPL and wh- whichever is, is on our mind that week or when we do the episode. Uh, I got some other writing projects, some that I unfortunately cannot talk about for now. But if you find me on Twitter, when they do come out, uh, you, you should share them there. But basically, I'm writing a lot on Canadian soccer, uh, on BT uh, Between the Sticks, mostly, you know, doing stuff for the men's and women's teams. For example, after this, I'm going to go uh, work on some some preview stuff for Canada, Costa Rica and the Gold Cup on Sunday. Obviously, a very big game coming up there. I got some, you know, going to do some white cap stuff. They got a huge game tomorrow. And then obviously I'll be doing some women's stuff tomorrow as they play tonight. So it's really just, you know, anything that, that comes to mind, you can find all that there. I, I do share all my work. So if, if you, if you want to, you know, if you haven't read any of my stuff, you want to check it out, that's where you can find me. And if you guys, uh, want to find it later i'll be retweeting out this information on my twitter account it'll also be as part of the pod so definitely get out there give this man a follow he's putting in work he's uh he's covering all sorts i don't know when you're gonna sleep over the next few days there's lots of games to cover (laughs) but uh really really big thank you for coming on the show today i i really do appreciate it and uh would love to have you come back and talk white caps maybe some mls in the future if you're if you're comfortable Oh, thanks. It was, it was a pleasure. And yeah, for, of course, anytime. This is great to, to that you've, you've, you've done this show. I mean, from, from what I've seen so far, it's, it's, it's been a great project, bringing on some great guests, having some great conversations. It was a pleasure to talk with, with football with you. Uh, so again, I'm, I'm, I'm open anytime. So yeah, thanks for this. And I guess good luck with the, the, the next episodes. I appreciate it. And hey, if you ever if you ever find yourself in Winnipeg in the summer, don't don't come in the winter. Uh, <laughs> let me know and we'll we'll go to I'll drag you to a Valor game. We'll have a drink. All right. Thank Perfect. you so much for being here. All right. Thanks. Bye bye. All right. That was uh, Alexandre Gagne Rusik. He's a writer uh, from Between the Sticks in Vancouver, as well as a up and coming uh, soccer journalist really he's already he's already doing it guys this man is awesome please go give him a follow um again i will be linking those uh let me actually you know what let's just quickly drop the link in chat here for you guys so that you guys can follow so the next segment really excited about the next segment as well and a big thank you to everybody who's uh listening who's been part of it and is part of the chat here at twitch.tv slash scooter s-c-o-o-t-r so for those who don't know we record this show monday and friday at 12 p.m and you can be part of it here on twitch so be doing it join us i don't bite you know well first or next up we have max mombre he's a uh, member of the waterloo united uh soccer club he's a youth coach here in canada and i'm uh, gonna be dragging him in for a little bit of uh picking the brain on how we develop youth in this country uh learn a little bit about uh waterloo united and a bit about uh you know maybe maybe a bit about the canadian premier league since he, he's a diehard pacific fan so without any further ado let's bring him in thank you very much for jumping in with me today max um it's a really great opportunity to talk a little bit about grassroots football here, soccer here in Canada. Uh, you'll notice I go back and forth. I get I get slapped from my friends over overseas if I say soccer too often. Um, but this is a good opportunity to talk a little bit about development. Um, you know, some of the, the lower lower level clubs and what they're doing with youth these days. So the first thing I kind of wanted to talk about is the club itself. So Waterloo United, is that that that's correct, right? You're a youth coach there. How long have you been coaching with them? So in December, I, uh, I was getting bored with the pandemic. Um, Ontario was in its uh, 19th lockdown. Um, so I decided to start working on my coaching badges. Um, and I uh, 
linked up with a guy on Twitter who worked for Waterloo United. I asked him if I could volunteer. And then shortly after that, um, I started working in their skill center program. So if, uh, if anybody here doesn't know what skill center is, basically it's kind of like a, uh, program that's kind of governed by Canada soccer, um, for athletes between the ages of eight and 12, um, which really kind of, you know, properly develops them and gives them the skills they need to be successful um, when they become teenagers and then they can go um, and either make the decision whether they want to play um, competitive or rec um, and kind of helps them out. Um, so if you kind of do want to follow that pathway to pro um, and you played soccer when you were a kid, most likely these kids are going through a skill center program. Um, so I started originally with uh, the U9s um, and then when my school year finished and I finished teaching for the school year, um, I started working with every level of the skill center program. Um, so it's certainly been uh, kind of a trial by fire, um, just kind of jumping right in and getting ready. But uh, it's certainly been a really good experience and it's been it's been awesome working with the kids. So especially with me being a school teacher during the year, um, still being able to work with kids um in the summer and then also kind of you know doing the thing that i love which is you know playing soccer um as well as teaching at the same time so it's certainly been a a fun experience for sure yeah it sounds like the your your two worlds are, are coming together and really providing a really rewarding opportunity for you it was something that i actually um didn't realize and and i wish i had known earlier and it's something i'm going to highlight right here for anyone who's listening or watching if you're curious about coaching are you curious about getting involved truly just ask some clubs that are nearby you chances are they need some help they need some people on the field and quite often many of these clubs will also get hook you up with some training some coaching certificates whatever it is give you guidance on on how to move forward and become a little bit more helpful for that club so that's that's really cool max that you were able to do that and and uh not only have the time in the summer to, to, to dedicate to some of that as well mm. so Waterloo United, I was taking a peek around, uh, uh, and they've been around for 50 years, which is actually yeah. pretty incredible. Um, can you tell me a bit about like where, like where the club kind of is rooted in, what kind of grounds they have, and what type of programs they offer? I, I, it seems like they have a load of different uh, age groups and teams and programs. Yeah, so this year has certainly been a, a really interesting uh, year for the club. Um, that being said, I've really only been at the club for a short period of time, so I, I wouldn't say that I'm like an expert ambassador or anything like that. Um, but just from kind of the knowledge that I have, um, we kind of have the complete pathway to pro, um, well, as high as you can get before you go to pro. Um, so we have everything from rec after you go to rec when you're, you know, the ages between like kind of three and seven, you would move into a skill center program after skill center. Um, you then make the decision to go into either region or district, um, or OPDL. So if, if, uh, anybody here doesn't know what OPDL is, it's basically kind of like a, uh, you know, very high tier Ontario player development league. Um, so a lot of the time, a lot of OPDL players will then transition into league one, um, and this year has been really interesting because we got a League One team. Um, so we're not playing in the main League One Ontario division. We're playing in the uh, League One Ontario University division, um, which is most of the players are kind of like playing out of universities. Um, so it's a good opportunity for those players as well, because when they're not playing with their university teams, um, so, you know, a lot of players from uh, University of Waterloo and Laurier, um, but even players from you know around the area like university of guelph um, when they're not playing with the university teams it still kind of gives them the opportunity to stay fit 
over the summer um, and, you know, play the game they love. Um, so me personally, um, I, I'm involved in the skill center program. Um, I started there just as a, uh, kind of like an assistant coach and I now I've kind of transitioned and kind of, uh, you know, one of the main assistant coaches, uh, primarily work with two individuals. And, uh, one thing that's kind of been really interesting that I didn't really expect to do was, um, I started like specifying in goalkeeping coaching. Um, so while the other two kind of head coaches were leading their sessions, I would take groups of goalkeepers um, and work in on that. Um, so working with goalkeepers has certainly been a really fun thing to do. And it's kind of been a, uh, a certification route that I didn't really plan when I started. Um, but now that I've done that, um, I took my first goalkeeper certificate course. So just like a standard online course. And then I'm uh, hopefully gonna work towards my goalkeeper coach diploma um and then after that you know you can go to your c licenses and you know we all know for football manager once you get your c license you can manage a lower league team so it's all good uh <laughs> you know the path <laughs> yeah, is there yeah exactly um, but in, in terms of the club there's kind of there's something for everyone um for all skill levels um you know we're part of uh you know we're licensed by canada soccer um we're part of the southwestern um ontario soccer association um, so we play clubs from all over the region. Um, so it's certainly been a, uh, a pretty fun experience since I started. And uh, it's definitely kind of just the tip of the iceberg for the moment, for, for me at least. So Yeah, it, sound, it sounds like your real-life football manager journey has just begun, Max. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think uh, I, I was involved in football manager. I think uh, back when I was podcasting for Northern Starting Eleven. I was added as a uh, as one of the media journalists in the uh, Canadian Mega Patch mod, but you know, hopefully, I'll be in the game one day as a coach and not a journalist because yeah. it's always fun when I'm playing the game and I see a question from myself and it's like Maxwell Mowbray is asking Maxwell Mowbray a question. It's just <laughs> it's it's odd every every time I see it, I do a double take. I'm like, that's weird. <laughs> yeah, uh, for sure. It's actually kind of a funny little bit of a football manager jostic here in chat. Wonder if Max has had a terrific group coming through and has the potential to be a real golden generation for the club. That's yeah. a little bit of a joke there for the football manager fans. This is a bit of crossover with those yeah. who watch my show and those who play the game. So, um, so that's awesome. So you got into coaching, you know, really it seems like the pandemic being at home, you know, is, is, you know, there's been actually some positive things that have come out of that people were at home, you were stuck and you had all this time to think about kind of what you wanted to do. Right. And, and so now you've jumped into this 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 journey and you're really enjoying your time with Waterloo. What drew you to the sport originally, whether it was as a fan or a coach? What what draws you to the game of, of soccer, um, you know, as a Canadian who we're, we're surrounded by any other sport? Mm -hmm. uh, kind of building off what you said earlier in the show when you were talking to Alex, I was also kind of a late bloomer um, to following soccer. Um, so I'm in my mid 20s now. Um, and honestly, I really didn't start becoming a diehard uh, soccer supporter until my first year of university. Um, and it's actually, it's, I feel so weird every single time I tell this story. But one of the main reasons why I started watching soccer was because in my first year of university, I went to University of Guelph, I lived in a residence building. Um, and for anybody who's lived in a residence building, you know how terrible the internet is. Um, so when I was younger, I watched hockey and, and we all know that, you know, hockey's hockey games are at night, um, you know, seven, eight o'clock. And it was getting to the point where I just couldn't stream 
sports. I was like, the internet's so bad, I can't watch anything. So I was like, I have to watch a sport during the morning when the internet's still good. So I started, you know, looking at the schedules. I was like, oh, well, I, I, could, I could start watching soccer. And so sure enough, I started watching the Premier League and things like that uh, because the games were at like, you know, 9 a.m., 10 a.m. So if I didn't have class, I'd turn on the Premier League and, and, and watch that. Um, and then after, you know, watching a couple Premier League um, games, you know, started following the league a little bit more, um, eventually started supporting Chelsea. Um, and then after that, you know, the, the snowball just rolled down the hill and, you know, uh, Chelsea led into uh, following other leagues, you know, not just England, but, you know, getting involved in, you know, watching the Bundesliga, um, MLS when Toronto FC became an expansion. Um, and then, of course, probably the one that I'm most known for um, on social media was, you know, starting to follow the Canadian Premier League. And when Pacific FC came out, it was definitely a project that I really kind of wanted to follow and be a part of. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's spiraled into, you know, this massive part of my life um, that really wasn't there for the first half of it. Uh, and, you know, of course, with that, there's all the, the fun things that come with it, like a, uh, you know, massive football manager addiction and you know, hundreds <laughs> of hours in that game. Uh, and, you know, you know, finding any kit you can, you know, when you go to winners. Uh, so it's certainly uh, a, a huge part of my life. But around first year university was when I really started to kind of follow the game and get involved. So. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, especially, I, I don't know if you feel the same way as me, but feeling as a little bit of a late bloomer, it feels like I kind of, I, I feel like I'm always playing catch up. Yeah. So whenever I'm, I'm, you know, having a good conversation with a friend of mine who's been a fan of the sport forever, I'll be, oh, you remember this happening with this player in the late 90s, and I'll, I blank, but you know what's great is world world is so accessible i can just go to the internet i can do a whole bunch of reading i can find that highlight i can find that moment and while i probably won't remember it with that same you know wow what a moment it, it'll be like okay i can remember that i can try to remember yeah. this player's name um, yeah. and it's, especially after like supporting like like for me for example like you know starting to support chelsea right you always when you first started you do kind of have that catch up like okay like who are the club legends who are the icons what are like the biggest moments in the history right and and, you know, even now, me, I've supported Chelsea for, you know, going on 10 years now. Um, it's, you know, I still feel like I'm playing catch up, you know, compared to some of those fans who have been, you know, fans since the day they were born, right? They're just kind of inherited. It's kind of like me with, you know, I've always been a Leafs fan my entire life. My brother's first words were Wendell because he liked Wendell Clark. So I've always had that attachment to the Leafs and I know all the history and I know that just because it was, it was a default, right? But with being a late bloomer and, and following the, you know, the sport of soccer, you know, you're still playing catch up, you know, even a decade after you started following the sport. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's something that, you know, through the few different interviews that I've had on the show and just meeting, you know, people throughout the last few years, it's such a different kind of feel as a North American, you know, especially if you're a, you're not a transplanted North American, you're someone who grew up here, you, 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 uh, didn't kind of bring that soccer history with your family with you. My family wasn't big soccer fans, right? So uh, you, here it's very much we kind of have to find your own way to it, yeah. whether whatever that way ends up being, right? You were you were needing to watch some sport in the morning, and this was the one you ended <laughs> up watching, or it was it, it's just a matter of fact that like we we grow up with so many options we're lucky i think in a sense that a lot of us are lucky enough to to have so many sport choices growing up like 
to be able to dabble in in anything. Um, but a lot of the people I meet overseas, right? It's 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 you were you were born into that fandom. You were almost told as a child what club may be yours, and maybe you're the child who rebels, right, and chooses the rival just to to to, to piss off the rest of your family. But it's it's such an interesting dynamic over here, I think, in, in terms of how people find their way way to a club. And with that being said, a little bit of a ramble there, but I have a point. There's a point yeah. here, Max, I swear. Uh, Pacific, Waterloo, if I'm correct, is in Ontario. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Pacific, <laughs> Pacific is very far to the west. In fact, almost as far as you can go west. What, yeah. what drew you into Pacific? Yeah, so... Uh, when I originally started my Twitter, it was pretty much like a, just a straight up Pacific SC account. I was PFC Ontario for a bit. Um, and then I, I switched my names. And so I still obviously still tweet a lot about Pacific. Um, but I wanted to kind of have my Twitter more set towards, you know, you know, being able, it, it, I found it weird when it was like, my name was PFC Ontario, but then I would like tweet about Chelsea or I'd tweet about Borussia Dortmund. So I, I switched my name. Um, but originally, when I started following Pacific, um, I was I was looking at the Canadian Premier League. I thought it was a really cool project. By that point, I had been following soccer for quite a long time. At least when you when you look at how long it, it was a decent amount of time. You know, not not as long as other people, but for me, it was a decent amount of time. Um, so I started taking a look at the league and kind of the teams that were available. Um, and I don't know if other people relate to this. So it maybe it was just a me thing, me being weird. Um, but I had already supported Toronto FC and the MLS for a decent amount of time. And I thought it would kind of be weird supporting two Ontario teams playing in the same country. Sure, they were in separate leagues, but like they could meet up in the Canadian Championship. And then that's a weird dynamic. Like, what do you do? Right. So uh, my dad grew up in BC uh, when he was a kid, his father was a, uh, he owned a couple Zellers stores. Remember Zellers? Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> he owned a couple Zeller stores and, and lived in a couple different places in BC, you know, uh, Port Coquitlam, uh, Chilliwack, Burnaby, places like that. Um, and then, so I was like, oh, Pacific might be cool. And so I started kind of looking at the ownership group and kind of the vibe that they were kind of giving off. I thought it was a really cool project. Um, and at the same time, you know, I had supported Chelsea. I had supported Dortmund for, for so long. And, you know, there's time changes and things like that. And I was like, well, it's no different with Pacific. You know, there's still a time change. So it might be, I, I don't know the exact difference between, you know, like I know Ontario to BC is three hours. I've gotten used to that. I had that one memorized because yeah. I've had some late nights watching Pacific. Whereas I, I can't remember the BC one. That's okay. But so, yeah, my, my dad grew up in BC and, and I thought, you know, Pacific was just kind of a cool club. I liked kind of the aura that they gave off and uh, it pretty much just kind of went on from there with the inaugural season, had a podcast for a while. I wrote for a bit. Um, and then after I kind of finished teacher's college, um, you know, kind of transitioned to just kind of maintaining the Twitter account and following the league and kind of becoming, you know, a member of this, you know, massively growing Canadian soccer community. Um, you know, even though both Pacific and the league have kind of had ups and downs, you know, I, I think it's it's been really fun to, to be a part of it and kind of watch watch the game in this country grow. Yeah, I think it, it's, it's one of those clubs, like even as a Valor fan, obviously I grew up in Winnipeg. It was, it was an easy choice for me 
to figure out which team in the league I was going to cheer for. But, um, you know, Pacific has sort of been, you know, you always have a kind of another team in your division or in your league where you're just, you don't, you can't really feel the rivalry because you kind of like them. You just That's how I've, like them. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've always, Pacific, whether it's the kits, whether it's their manager, whether it's their ownership, or whether it's the ground that they play in, which is absolutely on my away day uh, list one one day when I can afford a flight out yeah. there for a no for kidding. an away day game. Um, but it's just a, it just seems like a really complete package that really is doing good things in that community and is an extension of of things that were already happening in that that uh, the Vancouver Island community really, which it just seems to. I don't know what it is, but that good vibe you were talking about really does seem to come off them. And, and even when I, you know, if 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 and when you know Valor lose to Pacific this year, uh, I will certainly be sad, but I won't be angry if it's if that makes any sense. <laughs> um, so we've talked a little bit about uh, you know how you got involved in coaching, how you became a fan, um, how you became a Pacific fan. I was always curious about that. I had to, I had to ask that on the show. Yeah. No so. What I think I want to get a little bit more into, like what what you actually do with some of these kids, what some of the training is like. So, can you give me an idea of of the age group that you're working with, and some of the like drills or things that we teach players at this age? Yeah, so I work with ages U8 to U12, um, and I'm uh, part of the boys program. Um, we have the exact same program. So all the programs that I mentioned, you know, Rec, Skill Center, OPDL, League One, um, we have both for men's and women's, and there's dedicated coaches for both programs. Um, so that's one thing that I've really liked about the clubs is that, the, you know, they prioritize both the men's and the women's programs, um, which are awesome. Uh, but I was assigned to the boys program, so U8 to U12. Um, right now, at least, um, you know, obviously with, with COVID, things were kind of we're there for a bit, you know, in the winter, we could only do one practice a week and we had to break it up into different groups. We could only have like 10 players in a group. So it'd be really weird when there's like three coaches and 10 players. Uh, but now that things are, you know, normal, um, oh, we God, have really? two practices a week, uh, games on the weekend, um, both home and away. Um, so in terms of the practice where we kind of get into the, the nitty gritty, uh, you know, we have groups of about, 30 to 40 uh, athletes, depending on the age group. Um, and of course, you know, with summer, you know, attendance can be spotty, you know, especially with things opening. Uh, so uh, we have kind of like a head coach of the program who has curriculum, um, well-qualified individual. I've really enjoyed working with him. I've learned quite a lot from him. Um, and so he has a curriculum. We get sent out the curriculum um, and it kind of depends on the group. Uh, so U8, U9 kind of stick to the same curriculum and then uh, 10, 11, 12 have their own curriculum as well. Uh, so with U8, U9, it's mostly just kind of getting them comfortable on the ball, kind of really emphasizing those kind of like basic skills um, because some of these kids are kind of coming out of the rec programs, which is very basic. It's just kind of like physical literacy, getting comfortable with your body, being able to run, turn around, stop, things like that. Um, whereas when they come into the skill center for the first time, U8, U9, um, it's kind of taking those skills, building on them, advancing them, and then also kind of throwing in some, uh, you know, you know, shooting and passing and, and, and getting comfortable with that. Um, 
Whereas with the 10, 11, 12s, that's when you kind of really start emphasizing things like the rules of the game um, and getting into formation um, and kind of, you know, learning how the on-field aspect of the game kind of works. Because when you're playing racker, you're playing at a younger age group, you know, you're doing 5v5, you know, your formation is a diamond, right? It's just, as, as long as they're not in a line, as long as they're not one, two, three, four in a line, you're happy. Whereas when, when they're getting older, you know, and they start playing 7v7, 9v9, and then eventually 11v11 once they get into the OPDL programs, um, you've really got to kind of get them to learn how to kind of keep shape and, and, you know, understand what a formation is and kind of understand how the rules of the game work. Um, but that being said, with, with youth soccer in this country, you know, there are some kind of rules that are different compared to Europe. Uh, so that being said, it, it is kind of a little, a little, little different and kind of like if you saw a kid who was playing FIFA, the rules that they would see on FIFA might be a little bit different from the rules that they see when they come and play, you know, for a Canadian youth soccer club, um, you know, introducing things like a retreat line. So when there's a goal kick, um, you know, you got to be behind the retreat line so that it really emphasizes the kids to play out of the back. Um, so that's one thing that kind of Canada soccer is really focusing on. So not just Ontario, but kind of countrywide is this kind of play out of the back movement, you know, start with the goalie to the defense, to the midfield, to the striker. Um, they're really trying to get rid of that, you know, 80s, 90s model where it was just hoof the ball up to the striker, pray that he gets it and and build from the play. Whereas um, here it's kind of a lot of, you know, really focus on the build up play, you know, lots of quick passes back and forth, um, you know, utilize the wings, utilize your shape. Um, you know, one thing that I always have to say is, you know, when we're attacking, let's spread out, let's use the wings, let's use the whole field. And then when we're attacking, let's get a little bit closer, stay tight and keep shape right um, but obviously when you're learning these formations for the first time it can certainly be um you know a challenge for some of these kids but all, all the kids that i coach are, are honest it's just they're just so happy to be back you know um we could be doing sprints for an hour and, and they'll be happy because they're just back with their friends playing soccer right <laughs> obviously we don't do sprints for an hour an hour um but yeah the kids are, are just happy to play but it, it's certainly kind of an interesting dynamic that we have here in canadian youth soccer um you know whether that's you know the dynamic between the coaches and kind of following these new things um or or the players who are you know trying to you know play a sport um that's you know not as popular in this country compared to things like hockey or things like that so yeah and i and i and I, I mentioned it previously and i'm sure you've heard me say it before but in a sense you you do have to be somewhat stubborn to 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 want to be focused on the sport here because it overlaps with so many other popular sports that are that are you know high high uh, enrollments in Canada. Um, mm -hmm. But man, does that sound fun? Like I'm not gonna lie, like it does sound fun to go from that you know kind of hey we're we're gonna kick the ball around, we're gonna run around, we're gonna have some fun, you know seven eight nine, and then as you start moving in ten eleven twelves to really start to try and build that awareness of, you know, this is what a tactic is, this is kind of what your positional responsibility might be like. This is how to read a play. Because that was something that came up um, in conversation with other people, I think last year on Twitter, where around what some of the struggles the Canadian Premier League had that first year. And one of the, the few things that, that came out from some of the coaches across the league was that Canadians in general weren't as, they were really good technically, you know, very decent technically, but when it came to reading the play and being able to understand like what formation the other team is coming with when they're dropping a player or moving a player forward, like that ability to read the play, they felt like Canada as a nation 
you know, that was something we could do better. So it sounds like Canada soccer is sort of on it already in terms of trying to force the the play from the back. Don't just hoof it forward. You know, yeah. we're not playing. Uh, we're not just going to play uh, ultra direct all the whole the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> just it up to Giroud; he'll get it. Like... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're the target men. You are all center backs. Let's go. Yeah. You know. Uh, but no, that's that's really interesting. Um, what happens? Do you know what happens after that age group? Have you moved into older players beyond that, or is? Um, so I I've just worked with the skill center, so U8 to U12. Um, and then after you, so, you know, so-called graduate, uh, from the skill center program, you kind of have two choices. So you either go into the regional and district leagues. Um, so that's kind of like, uh, it's, it's a less competitive model. So OPDL is a competitive model, uh, region and district is the less competitive model, but it still kind of keeps up the same standards of the skill center program. So skill center gets you ready for both programs. Um, and then you make the decision of which program you want to go into, um, so after that, you either choose whether you want to play in sort of the region, the district, so Southern Ontario, uh, whereas OPDL, um, you're playing against some of the top youth teams in this province. Um, so with that, I've only worked with the, the one, um, you know, part of our club. Obviously, there's, you know, there's so many parts of the club that you, you can get involved with. Uh, but definitely after that, you, you know, you kind of have that decision to make whether um like if, if you want to go pro and you're trying to find that pathway to pro or even to something like League One Ontario, um, you're likely going to go to OPDL. Um, whereas if you're just kind of playing for fun or you're playing on the side and you just want to stay active, then you'd likely just stick with the region and district programs. So it, it, it's interesting that a decision like that for a kid at 12, you yeah, know, uh, I know right? it, it's, it's, it's interesting because I'm sitting there and I'm thinking like, uh, you know, my own personal experience through life, you know, we go through school, we go through different things. I don't think I had to make such an incredibly important decision at 12 years old around, like I, I wasn't an elite athlete by any measure. I certainly played a lot of hockey, uh, and baseball at the time, not, not, not soccer, sadly. Um, but 12 years old to decide, Hey, are you doing this for fun or are you trying to maybe get to college or university with this? Do you want to make this pro opportunity, right? Because those are some things that I can't, you know, I do 12 year olds that you man, do there, are they thinking about stuff like that already? No, no, not at all. No. So it's, 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 and it's the exact same thing. Like, so I, I, sorry, no, I didn't coach. I taught, um, I taught a four or five class uh, in the afternoon and I taught a grade six class in the morning. Um, so very similar age groups to the age groups that I coached. And it'd be like the exact same thing if I went into my classroom where I logged on to my Google Meet because we were in lockdown. Yeah. And and I asked these kids, hey, what do you want to do for a living? You know, some of them might have an answer. And then others will be, they'll have no idea, right? So it, it, it's a huge decision to make. And there's, there's going to be those kids that are able to make that choice, you know, pretty easily. Like I, I had some, you know, right away, they're like, you know, I want to do this when I grow up. And they were really determined on it. But you know, the, the the majority of the population, you know, they don't know what they want to do. And, yeah. and me at 12 years old, I, I wouldn't have predicted that I was going to be a teacher. I, I don't think I made that decision until like grade 11. Right. So even even just deciding that, you know, that, that was a massive decision, a huge part of my life that would determine the rest of my life and, and what I'm going to do. So it's it's the exact same thing with with your playing path, you know, making that decision. You know, do I want to go pro? Do I want to go semi-pro? Do I want to play in college and university? That's a huge decision to make when you're young. But the reality, I think, is, too, is as much as I'm thinking about, wow, 12 years old to make that kind of decision at the same time, 
that's around the time you need to start thinking about it because of the amount of training and effort it's going to take. You're going to be looked at, you're going to be scouted, you know, yep. at those ages, especially if you start moving into the, into, into the more serious side of things. Um, that's really interesting. Again, something I didn't, didn't know, uh, before, before we chatted. So that's fantastic. Yeah. What has been some of the most rewarding parts of coaching and getting involved with the kids? Yeah, so it's definitely very similar to teaching, um, just kind of getting to know the people that you work with, so your coworkers, but then also more importantly, getting to know the athletes or the students that you work with and kind of seeing them progress, right? There's nothing more rewarding than seeing someone learn. Uh, and I've been fortunate enough to kind of see that in multiple contexts, um, whether that be in a classroom as a teacher or, you know, on the field as a coach. So just kind of seeing kids progress and, and, you know, set goals and achieve those goals or have setbacks and then come back even stronger. Um, it, it's certainly a very rewarding experience from top to bottom. Um, that being said, you know, it, it does have its challenges, but, you know, you know, just like the athletes, you know, you're going to have setbacks and then you're going to, you know, come back stronger from that. Uh, so it's definitely been really, really rewarding just kind of getting to know the kids, um, but also just kind of, you know, soaking in every minute of it um i was by no means a you know i i wasn't on the pathway to pro and i, and I knew that at a very young age um so mind mind you like injuries were kind of in the way but but that being said um so just kind of learning from individuals around me who you know maybe did make that decision um, and they want to pass on their knowledge. I've been really fortunate enough to work with a lot of, you know, really qualified individuals who are very knowledgeable um, and have kind of passed on their skills to me. Um, and then also kind of taking those skills and kind of developing my own coaching mindset. Um, you know, everyone kind of comes in and they all have their own philosophy. Um, and obviously you can't just kind of take someone's philosophy and then, okay, that's mine. You know, everyone, you kind of take a little bit from here and a little bit from here and you kind of put it all in together and then you build your own coaching philosophy or your own teaching philosophy. Um, so just kind of soaking in every minute of it and, and learning from the individuals that I get to work with kind of, you know, throughout the week, it's, it's certainly been really rewarding. Um, and then probably the highlight of, uh, of my summer so far was uh, actually coaching a game against a former Canadian <laughs> Premier League player. Um, I was in Guelph. And my U8 boys were playing the Guelph Griffins um, and former York nine defender, Justin Springer um, is really involved with Guelph soccer, their league one program, but also their youth soccer. Uh, so I coached a game against Justin Springer's U8 boys. So that was a really cool experience, um, you know, going up against a former CPLer um, and, you know, just kind of goes to show kind of the small world, you know, that we live in. So. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned it's a small world, right? And I think it's something that that people don't realize the amount of volunteer hours that go into amateur sports in this country. That's not like a lot of, um, you know, situations in, in, in more of these, I don't know, footballing nations where your academies are constantly looking out. Academies are well, you know, well equipped, well, well budgeted. Um, a lot of the effort here in Canada is volunteers, people who have a passion for the sport, a passion for the job. And so you know, being part of that, it's, it, it must be, you must feel like you're part of, part of a, a very tight woven community that it's all kind of aiming at the same, the same goals. That being said, 
what's your plan in the future? Do you have an idea of what you want to do with this? Is this always going to be kind of a, you know, obviously you teach as a full-time job. Is this something that you want to keep going with? You want to continue to get your licenses and see where it takes you? Yeah, I, I definitely love for now to kind of keep it up as a summer gig. Um, the, the schedule kind of really aligns well, kind of obviously once the kids are out of school, um, the schedule kind of amps up. And of course, when the kids are done school, I'm done school. Uh, so definitely a really nice summer gig to kind of keep doing. I think I'll still kind of do it. I might work with less teams during the school year, but still kind of coach, you know, one or two teams during the school year and work with that. Um, and other than that, yeah, just kind of keep learning, you know, as teachers, as coaches, you never stop learning. That's part of the job, right? Uh, so definitely still going to kind of work towards some of those coaching badges. Definitely want to work towards my, uh, my goalkeeper diploma um, and my C license. Um, and, and for just as kind of like a little plug, like for, for anybody who's kind of interested, um, you know, it, it's really easy to kind of find the resources to get involved and to kind of start the steps on your kind of coaching pathway um there's a lot of free courses out there there's a lot of paid courses out there um but both of them are you know really knowledgeable and can help you out um, and the thing that's kind of nice is kind of depending on the club that you work with or that you volunteer with sometimes you do get kind of financial compensation for doing that because the club's kind of uh, view is that, well, we'll help you pay for this course because when you come back, you're more knowledgeable when you come back, right? So, you know, me taking something like a goalkeeper certificate, you know, that's not something that everyone takes, right? You know, everyone takes their, you know, making ethical decisions and respect in sport and concussion training, right? But not everybody goes out and, and wants to, you know, get a goalkeeping certificate. Um, so depending on the team that you work with, you know, sometimes you can even get paid to take these courses. Um, so just go onto the Canada soccer website or the, you know, the Ontario soccer or whatever province you live in, um, you know, the soccer federations have a whole bunch of courses, a whole bunch of resources for you to kind of learn and grow as an individual. So. Yeah. And that's one of the things I, I actually reached out to a few clubs in the past year, just seeing if they needed any, any help. And my thought was I'm at home. I have time to do social media or whatever it is that people needed help with. And they were pretty much like, well, do you want to take a coaching course? Cause we'll pay for it. And you can come out three days a week. Like they're, they want people involved. Right. So uh, I wish I had known that at a, at a, at a, at a younger age when I had more time, uh, certainly with the young one right now, it's a little bit hard for me to say, oh yeah, I'll be away for three days coaching a team. For fun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's something I, I, I'm echoing you there, like get out, check out your websites, whether it's, it's, you know, Canada soccer, we'll have a link to the different provincial areas, or if you're not in Canada, just check out the local region. There's going to be loads of ways to get involved. And uh, mm -hmm. I think I think from what you've heard from Max here, it's incredibly rewarding. Before we move away from some of the coaching and maybe get into a little bit of uh, Canada Premier League uh, uh, banter, um, what do you think, like I know you're new, you're, you're relatively new to, to coaching. You've been in there for two or three years. What do you think that we're doing really well right now in, that, in those age groups from seven to, seven to 12? Yeah, I definitely think right now it's it's kind of a really interesting time um, for all sports in this country. I think the one thing is, is that kids right now are just so they just want to get out. They we've been they've been at school online. You know, they haven't been able to see their friends. They haven't been able to get out. So I think right now you're seeing a, a huge influx of kids just kind of wanting to get out and play sports. Um, so, you know, ever since we've returned back from lockdown, 
um, you know, kids are just kind of happy to get out and local teams, local sports, they're really kind of capitalizing on that. They're enjoying that. Um, so just kind of, if we can kind of continue that momentum that we're going on, um, it's definitely kind of a good pathway towards the future. Um, and with that kind of right now, kids have a lot of options. Um, I know right now, you know, depending on who you talk to, um, people sometimes don't think that kind of Canada has a lot of options, right? They're like, well, well, you don't have an academy system or you don't have this compared to like, you know, over in England, you know, you join Chelsea when you're six years old and then you work your way and then you pull a Mason Mountain when you UCL, like you can go the whole way up, right? Whereas here, you know, academies aren't a huge thing, right? You know, obviously Pacific has the WAVE program um, and FC Edmonton and Calgary have the uh, AMSL clubs. Um, but other than that, you know, you know, Canadian Premier League, there, there isn't really an academy system. So that academy system kind of falls down to your, you know, semi-pro clubs, things like the League One Ontario teams. Um, or even in, in my case, you know, Waterloo having the, you start when you're three, you, or you can start as early as three and work your way all the way up to the League One reserves or the League One university division. Um, and then after that, you know, we've heard of so many people uh, going from League One to, you know, overseas or the Canadian Premier League, things like that. Um, so depending on who you talk to, some people might say that, you know, Canada doesn't have a whole lot of options, you know, or not a whole lot of clubs. But when you actually kind of dive into it, there's a lot of soccer clubs out there. Um, so kids have choice, right? Um, and a lot of the time, you know, it's, it's close to home, which is really nice and kind of depending if you live in a rural area or a city center. Um, obviously, if you live kind of in a city, there's there's even more options, right? Um, and it kind of depends on kind of the competitive level, right? So if, if you're really kind of striving to be the best, you know, you maybe say, look at something like a TFC program, get involved with TFC and, and work your way up that, right? Um, but obviously, there's, there's, there's kind of options everywhere. So uh, me personally, I think kind of if you want to work on that pathway, the options are available, you just kind of have to look for them. Um, and kind of building off that point, now that the Canadian Premier League is here, the path to pro um, is becoming more and more clear for those who want it. Um, so, you know, having a top division soccer league in this country, um, you know, sure it has its ups and downs, but it's there. That, that's, that's, that's the thing that I can't stress enough. It's there. You know, as much as, as one soccer drives me up the wall and, you know, like, I miss replays of a goal because they were showing something else. They pull a Lance Stroll F1. Like, even though there's the ups and downs, it's there. And I appreciate that. And I'll always appreciate that, you know, regardless of what happens, right? So just knowing that the Canadian Premier League is there and also for kids knowing that the Canadian Premier League is there and say, okay, maybe I can work towards that, right? And, you know, if the Canadian Premier League kind of keeps its image of being a development league, then, you know, you can go say, well, I can work my way up, maybe try League One, try College University, um, you know, transition to Canadian Premier League. And then we've seen people in the Canadian Premier League go overseas, go to MLS. Um, and then from there, you know, the world's your oyster. Uh, so the, the path to pro becoming a little bit more clear in Canada has definitely been something that we've improved on. 
Um, you know, we've seen players like, uh, you know, look at Jonathan David, Alfonso Davies, you know, yeah. playing with their local clubs, going to MLS and then going abroad. Um, you know, obviously uh, the Canadian Premier League players um, take a look at someone like Tristan Borges, right, working his way uh, through the League One Ontario system, coming into the Canadian Premier League, getting a move abroad. Joel Waterman, Zajac, you know, the list goes on and on and on, right? Uh, so that being there um, is definitely something that Canadian kids can, uh, you know, kind of look towards. But at the same time, right now, I feel like the path to pro is, you know, I I'm saying it like it's like it's clear and everyone knows, right? But yeah. that being said, right now, I feel like the path to pro is only visible to those who, you know, want to know if it's visible it's maybe not as clear right you know if you ask any you know any youth hockey player you know they'll tell you well you know i go here i'll transition to the chl maybe go to the ahl and then boom i'm at the nhl right whereas if i ask you know an eight-year-old all right how can you become pro you know nine times out of ten they won't have an answer for me right yeah. so it's kind of definitely kind of advertising that path and getting kids to know but it's there so that's something that i'm definitely grateful for yeah, and I think I think you you know you've touched on a few things there, and one of the ones that I kind of want to come back to is is the idea that we need to make more people aware of this, right? And, and you're right. Like as a hockey player, I grew up knowing what the path would be, knowing what all the different options would be, knowing the different leagues that I could go through, and how you would develop from junior to your semi semi pro to a pro to wherever you hope to land, right? In the world of of soccer in Canada. Uh, it was always sort of a, oh, you go here, you can go here, you can go here, and then you can go to university. And then after that, it's a great cloud yeah. where you could basically go anywhere in the world. And one of the things I always like to point out to people is, you know what, go look at some of the Canadian players who played in the early 2000s and in and, 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 and any league in the world and look at their history, right? Look at their history of where they've played and you will see so many clubs and countries it doesn't make any sense. There's no cohesiveness to it because you're truly just looking for wherever that opportunity is, right? So having the Canadian Premier League here, being able to point to that and going, this is this is for us. This is for us to develop our game, our ability to develop players and ensure that there's, a, there's jobs available within this country for those yeah. players. And we can always talk about, you know, as you talked about, about one soccer, some of the issues with one soccer and the Canadian Premier League, just the same. It's a new league. There's going to be issues. There's going to be there's going to be challenges that they need to work through. Um, but that's part of it. And the, the the hope would be right. There's a you and I, the fans, you know, you being a coach, being involved in the system also have some say in how our kind of national system works, how this development pathway works. Right. And it just it seems to me and it sounds like to me that the Canada soccer is really trying their best to modernize how we train and to, to prepare us for hopefully, you know, five or 10 down years down the line, being a top 30, top 40 nation in the world for 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 soccer. Yeah. And, and there's no reason why we can. Like, that's the one thing there's literally nothing holding us back from being a top nation. Um, you know, obviously we're seeing so many, you know, really good Canadians kind of come out, you know, obviously everyone thinks of Alfonso, everyone thinks of Jonathan David, but then, you know, we're getting these kind of diamonds in the rough that are just kind of coming out of obscurity, right? You know, three years ago, you know, how many people knew who Tajan Buchanan was or how many people knew who All-Star Johnson was? Like, it's just, 
it's kind of an interesting dynamic you're seeing just like every year with soccer. And that's kind of the cool thing about soccer, right? You know, it, it's even the exact same thing, you know, four years ago, you know, nobody knew who Erling Holland was and now right. he's the best striker in the game. Right. So that's kind of the beautiful thing about soccer is that, you know, kind of each year, you know, even this year, the upcoming season, you know, there's going to be players that are just going to kind of emerge out of absolute nowhere and become superstars. And, and there's no reason why Canada as a nation and Canadian soccer players, you know, can't do the same thing. You know, we're, we're seeing that happen more and more, you know, Canadian players getting moves abroad and, and not like, you know, well, I can't find anywhere to play, but you know, I have this offer from the third tier in Finland. Whereas like, it's like, no, like guys are moving from MLS to Bayern Munich, you know, to Lille in France or even like Tejan right now, like he has offers from, you know, I believe Lens was one of them. Yeah. Um, you know, Bundesliga's clubs are putting offers on the table. So it's, it's not just moving over, like saying moving overseas, that's that's a huge thing, right? Going overseas to play a sport, that's a big risk to take. That's a big jump for anyone in any sport. But, you know, Canadians making the jump to top tier, you know, those top five leagues. Um, it's certainly a very interesting kind of time for soccer in this country. And it's, it's definitely very exciting, you know, as a supporter and as a, uh, as a coach kind of seeing, you know, because I'm coaching in the kind of the exact same pathway that some of these players took so you know who's to say that you know one of my kids isn't going to follow that pathway right so it's certainly kind of a very interesting time yeah you never know right five ten years from now we might be able to talk about a few of your kids who are playing the Canadian premier league right that's that's the fun yeah. part for sure for sure so let's talk canadian premier league we got a little bit of time left here max um, for those who aren't aware, haven't been following the league, the Canadian Premier League kicked off with a, a bubble event in Winnipeg called the Kickoff. With very creative name, um, <laughs> and they basically <laughs> held all the games in Winnipeg without spectators or fans um, for for the first, I want to say, eight weeks or so of the season, about, about eight yeah. or nine weeks. Um, what have you thought of the kickoff so far, just from an event standpoint? Have you enjoyed? being able to watch the teams are you annoyed with the virtual stadium every game what are your thoughts on, uh, on on watching the kickoff so far i mean overall as a fan i'm just happy it's back um i think kind of the one thing with the canadian premier league being such a new league um you know you always kind of have that thought in the back of your head where it's like you know you, you just want the league to stay a flow, right? Yeah. So being able to know that they're, they're kind of able to financially sustain a model where they can play um, is, is certainly kind of nice to know. So I'm just happy the league's back um, and, you know, being able to play games. Um, obviously, like I said, there's ups, there's downs. Uh, but overall, it's been a really kind of interesting season uh, since the league started. Um, I think kind of one thing that we're seeing is um i'm really kind of enjoying the kind of power dynamic shift right now um you know it was kind of the the first time that we saw forge kind of have some struggles right you know is this going to be the year that calvary finally like comes in clutch and wins when they need to win um and then of course you know for the last three seasons there's always been that expectation where like you know pacific's a good team and then you know, we've seen where kind of they've kind of come off the rails um, when they needed to stay strong the most. Um, so so me personally, it's it's kind of been really interesting kind of seeing some of these teams who in the past have kind of had their struggles. Right. So, you know, 
I, I'm not gonna lie, Valor's had some tough seasons, right? But I was you just know, waiting for it. <laughs> they came out of the gate and they mean business. Valor is a tough team to play against, and I think right now, if you ask any of the other teams in the league, they don't want to play against Valor, right? And then on the other hand, you're seeing a team like York, who traditionally have kind of done pretty good. You know, I hate kind of using the. Uh, the, the football manager terminology, but, you know, York's kind of always been like the best of the rest. Right. And, you know, this year they're really kind of hitting a struggling point. Right. And, you know, especially after signing, you know, like Noah Verhoeven, you know, like I thought he was going to boss it for York and, you know, obviously he can't do it on his own. Right. It's a team effort. So, you know, seeing a team like York kind of go through struggles, um, it, it's certainly been interesting and Forge like, you know, losing a couple it's been it's been kind of really wild um and then of course kind of all the things that kind of come with it right um you know certain players kind of standing out and you know making a claim for themselves um i have no idea how marco bustos isn't playing in the mls there's no reason why marco bustos can't be playing in the mls right now like it's getting to the point where marco bustos is too good for this league and if he wants national team call-ups, whether that be for Canada or Chile, I don't kind of know his cup or his cap tie situation. But if he wants national call-ups, if he wants kind of to move on, he needs to move on now because he's at the top of his game. He's absolutely crushing it. And it, it's getting to the point. You you could even say this as a Valor fan. You saw him play yep. for Winnipeg for a season there. Like he was just, he's a great player. And there's no reason why he can't be playing in the MLS or, or you got a player like Josh Hurd for Pacific, who, you know, last year kind of struggled to squeeze his way into the team, didn't only kind of had cameo appearances, didn't really do much. And then this year he's come out of the gates and he's been amazing, you know, a, a really good winger, right? And, you know, personally, I think it's been, uh, it's been kind of tricky kind of replacing the gap that Ben Fisk left when he left Pacific, right? So obviously with Bustos, he kind of started to kind of fill on that attacking mid role and scoring goals. But in terms of the wings, you know, when Ben Fisk left, it was like, that was a big gap. And then, so you got this, this Welsh player coming in from the USL kind of, you know, had a couple loans, didn't really get a whole lot of experience. didn't work out. Wasn't going to cut it in the MLS to their standards. And then he has an opportunity to come into the Canadian Premier League, get some starts get some goals and and make some really good plays um so so me personally i've been loving it um the play on the field you know obviously the virtual stadiums just it's bad <laughs> but in in terms of ignoring ignoring the virtual field and ignoring the fact that the camera zoomed out as far as it can from the nosebleeds the product on the field has been great and i've been loving it and and like i said i'm just happy it's there because you know i I've been so invested in this league, right? So, you know, just knowing that, you know, we can have a season and that's something that we can kind of financially do uh, is definitely kind of a really big step for this league. So so here's a thought. We only have a couple minutes left, but I think you, you, you point out something I do want to talk about a bit. I think what we've seen yeah. in this third season of the Canadian Premier League is it seems to me, and maybe you agree, but the quality has just stepped up across the board. And so even though York might be struggling, I still see them as a better team than they were the year before and the year before that. Like I'm seeing this kind of progression. It's just some clubs are taking a little bit of a leap. I think Valor, you know, trying to be as unbiased as possible. This has been building for a while. That first team was not the team we wanted. And Gail basically ripped it apart to the studs and started over again, building 
culture into that room. And I think a big, the biggest signing that Valor made was the signing of Jean-Baptiste, the best, in my opinion, best center back in the league, and unfortunately is now out for the year. So that's going to be a big, big worry for us going down the rest of the year. But like you were mentioning about Bustos, absolutely. Him and Jean-Baptiste, if Jean-Baptiste wasn't hurt, I'd put him in the same spot. Those are two players who could play in the MLS. They could be moving on somewhere else. They, they provide so much quality for their team. I mean, Bustos, when he cuts in, and takes his shot like it's you're always you're you're waiting for this beautiful goal like almost instantly now whereas i feel like the first year or two you know i wasn't too sure what to expect from a lot of players in the league i wasn't really too sure what their wheelhouse was and maybe they weren't too sure what everybody on their team's wheelhouse was and you're starting to really see that comfort of i know what this is guy's good at i know what my teammate is good at and people are getting familiar like oh i know bustos is going to cut so i'm going to drive to the net create him that option right it's it's just really fun to, to see. And I think the point I'm getting to here, Max, is I used to watch out of stubbornness the first season or two. Just, I'm going to watch all the games. I want to make sure they're watched. Whereas now I'm like, oh, there's games on tonight. I got to watch it. There's a double header tonight. I'm really excited, right? Like, yeah. there's a real, it's it's just like the Premier League in, in, in England to me now. It's something like, I want to watch every game. I want to know what's going on. And I want to know what the storylines are in every single game. And it's just been something that I, I, it's hard for me to imagine life anywhere else or, or in any, any way else now. And the fact that, you know, there's going to be a couple weeks here where I, Valor goes out on the road, but that first game at home where I'm able to go back into the ground with the fans, there might be a tear. There might be a tear of happiness coming down, man. I'm not going to lie. I, it'll be, it'll be, it, it'll be great just to be back in there. And hopefully, uh, you know, it'll, it'll be, it'll be nice to see a, a Valor dub in front of me as well, but uh, for sure. yeah, that's there's the bias coming back in. <laughs> but hey, good. thank you so much for taking the time to hang out today, Max, and have this conversation. It's been really, really great having this conversation with you. I've really learned a lot, and uh, maybe we could have you back on uh, again. Maybe talk a little bit more about Pacific and the league if you're if you're interested. Yeah, for sure. Anytime, Pacific, Chelsea, Dortmund, whatever you need. And uh, one more little plug before I leave. If anybody from League Office is listening, recognize the player union. I'm just going to drop that. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we are absolutely uh, – that, that was something I'd hoped we'd had talk talk about. But, uh, you know, that's something that almost deserves its own segment and will have its own segment. Um, I mean, I've, I've had a couple of conversations with uh, a former player and current player who uh, will be coming on to talk some of those issues. So um, I think it's important that we highlight them, and I think we'll do it in a, in a, in a full segment. So ho- hopefully soon. But Max – any other plugs? Anything else uh, people want to follow you? Uh, what's your Twitter? Share it with yeah. the nation here. Uh, if anybody wants to follow me on Twitter, um, it's just fcmaxwell93. Um, that's where I kind of do the primary of my tweeting. Uh, so if you just want to follow me on there. Um, or if you're in the Waterloo area, uh, I'll be catching League One Ontario games. Or, you know, I, uh, I have had a history of kind of going to Forge and uh, York 9 uh pacific fc away game so if you're in the area uh feel free i always love to come and uh, chat about football so let me know awesome thank you so much max really appreciate it thank you so much for taking the time today and enjoy the rest of your day awesome thank you bye 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 that was max mowbray he is a youth coach with waterloo united in ontario he's also a massive pacific fc fan want to give him a huge thank you for coming on the show today Really, really do appreciate it. So we're going to be heading into our third segment of the show, our final guest, and it's going to be a little bit of fun. We're bringing in a friend of the show, a friend of mine, Simon, 
You may know him as Interozi from the old Twitch platform. He's played a little bit of football manager. He's also a massive Arsenal fan and an incredible uh, football addict. I'm going to switch back to football now, so I don't say soccer when we bring in the Irishman, okay? But let's bring him in. How are we Welcome. Doing? <laughs> <laughs> How are you keeping, buddy, or well? Oh, not too bad, not too bad. Lovely to see your face today, sir. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really, really do appreciate it. No problem at all. And I'm after making serious concessions to come on because I've had to <laughs> plug out the fan that has been trying to keep me cool over oh, the past week in a heat geez. wave just for this. So if I do melt to a puddle and end this this segment in a liquid form as opposed to solid... There was nothing I could do, I'm afraid. Hey, we appreciate your sacrifice, and if, yeah, we have to put you in a bottle or something after, put you in the freezer, <laughs> get you back together, whatever we'll do, you know? But yeah, I really Might do appreciate it. So before we get started into a little bit of talk around uh, Arsenal, um, wanted to give the opportunity for, for us to kind of uh, introduce you to whoever's listening, whoever's watching, watching the show today. So Simon, you live in Ireland, correct? And you're also correct. a massive... Arsenal fan. Can you tell me a little bit about how you ended up an Arsenal supporter while living in uh, in Ireland? Yeah, there, to be fair, it wasn't um, it wasn't by choice. Um, if if I'm being honest, so my father is a is a diehard Arsenal fan, and when he was younger, his father, my grandfather, had a had a pub in the old Holloway Road in London, which is just around the corner from Highbury. Um, so he grew up over there as an Arsenal fan and moved back to Ireland then kind of in his teens or whatever. But um, so he was always a, a diehard Arsenal fan, a lifelong fan. And then when I was born, uh, my mother even said that there was a squad poster of the Arsenal squad above my cot as a child. So it was, um, I, I didn't have a chance. I didn't have a choice. Um, it, it just, it just happened. It was passed on generation to generation, basically. Um, um, so I'm going to say I inherited it as, as opposed to anything, but yeah, I mean, I, I grew up from, you know, as, as soon as I was able to, to walk and speak, um, you know, I had Arsenal kits on me. Um, I was kicking a, an Arsenal ball, um, and all my life have been an Arsenal fan since. And as, painful as it is you just grow up with that um i suppose that that love for it and th that affinity towards a club that you've supported for so long so i can't imagine it not being a, a part of my life now you know yeah absolutely and it's, it's interesting because the last guest i don't know if you caught it we were talking a bit about how canadians find their way right and it it is very different right it, it, you weren't given a choice you were told you were dressed and you were given the club that you were going to support whereas here you, you kind of have to usually find your way there in a bit of stubbornness it's, it's very interesting I, I i wonder what club i would have ended up of if i had uh, born somewhere else you know yeah and i, th I think that like there's a there's a brilliant dennis burkham quote that I, I don't know word for word but basically along the the lines of you don't support a club because of where you're from or because of what they've won you support yourself because at one moment you found yourself there yeah. um and i think that no matter like if it's your local club and you support them because you're local you will still have that experience where you found yourself there there was a moment there was a game there was a lot last gasp winner that went in that all of a sudden emotion overcame you and once you have that feeling and you experience that once, that's it. You're done. That is your club and never 
never will be, you know, I suppose anything that you, you can, I suppose what's the, what's the word I'm trying to say here, but you can't break that bond after that. It's just, it will stay that way forever because you have experienced that. It's interesting. There's a little bit of a, a pop-up in chat here. Jostic, what a beautiful sight to see a fellow gunner. It's uh, the you know, <laughs> not the only one. They're obviously a massive club, right? So it's 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 very it's just interesting for a North American to want to add because you're in a different country. It's not a local, right? It's just one of those things where I'm always curious of where people get their their uh, their their clubs from. Their, with the club they're going to support. So Arsenal. Talk yes. a little bit where you came from in terms of your your supporting. You were you weren't given a choice. The old man gave you gave you the the ultimatum. Yeah. What are some <laughs> of your greatest memories growing up as an Arsenal fan? Um, there there's a few. There there's a few. Um, like I w- I was very lucky in the sense that living in Ireland, um, you can fly straight to London. You're there, and it, the flight itself is an hour or less. Um, so pretty much every year. Growing up, I went to a match. Um, usually for my birthday, my father would right away we go um, and we'd go see a game. So there's a there's a lot of memories there of I suppose being at the stadium, which was just incredible. Um, and like even I can remember at the old Wembley Stadium playing Barcelona and we lost four two, but. You know, I was looking down at Patrick Clivert on the pitch. You know what I mean? And that, that, and I know it sounds crazy to say, oh, you know, you're talking about Arsenal, but you're mentioning Barcelona players. But that was the level we were at um, at this time where we were playing these clubs regularly. Um, and that would have been late 90s, early 2000s, early 2000s probably. Um, but some of the best memories, uh, I think as a kid, they're all great memories. But you don't... I probably don't remember them as keenly as I would from later memories. Uh, like the double when we did it in 1998, I can remember we owned a bar here in Cork and I can remember being in the lounge of the bar. It was an Arsenal supporters pub. So all of the Arsenal fans came to, to watch games. So every game was absolutely fantastic because there was always a group of people. There was always a crowd of people. And I was, you know, eight, nine, ten years of age, just surrounded by all these Arsenal fans, just absorbing that atmosphere, even though I wasn't at the game. So every game at that age was incredible. But the double in 98, that was, you know, the 98-98 season was incredible. Um, it was just unbelievable. And the Tony Adams goal against against Everton and everything that went with it, it was just awesome. Um, but if I was to say one of my my fondest memories I think is actually more recently and I think is when we beat Hull in the FA Cup to to go was it eight nine years without a without a trophy to to, to put that to bed because I think it was the, was it the year before maybe two years before when we lost to to Birmingham in the League Cup final um an absolute howler of a mistake between Koscielny and Chesney at the end of it and Obafemi Martins just empty goal and slotted it in and at that stage, I was like, is it ever going to come back? That that winning feeling, you know, just, you know, this was, I thought we were nailed on to win it. And then I went, no, we're in another final now. You know, it would have been a year or two later. We're in another final. We're against Hull. We should be winning this. And we went 2-0 down. I think it was 20, 25 minutes on the clock. We were 2-0 down. And that same feeling came back where I was going, are we ever going to win again? Is it is it going to come back? Um, and I can remember that day even before the match, had a couple of buddies who were Arsenal fans up to the house, 
cooked up a big chili, had a load of food, had a couple of beers, and we went into the pub watching it. We were there a bit before kickoff. By the time the game kicked off, we'd had a few. Everybody was in high spirits. Again, it was a lot of Arsenal fans. It was a, a supporters club down in, in Clonagilty in, in West Cork. And it, after 20, 25 minutes, the, the energy was just sapped from the room. And then all of a sudden, Santi Carzola absolutely pinged in a <laughs> kick. And we lost and there was belief. And I think the reason I think it was one of the most, I suppose, one of my fondest memories was not only the fact that we won the FA Cup, not only the fact that we had gone so long without having won a trophy as a major club, it was just, you know, this type of drought was, I suppose, a, a big thing at that time, considering the success we had had under Wenger. But it was the manner that we did it in. It was that Aaron Ramsey goal in extra time. And it was the fact that as a fully grown adult, I could really experience the emotion. It wasn't, I wasn't mimicking other people's emotions as can happen a small bit as a kid. Oh, they're happy. I'm happy. It was a fully grown man, nearly in tears, hugging everybody around him, pointing the air, just like, oh my God. Um, just sheer delight from the inside coming out. And I can remember that whole night. I didn't, I, at no point did I not have a smile on my face. I just, I was, I was smiling for a week after it. And that's why I think that was one of my favorite because it was the first time I suppose as I said, really as an adult like that, that I'd experienced that. Obviously I'd had, you know, there was the, you know, the, the, the invincibles and everything like that. Again, early teens and stuff. It didn't, com- it didn't compare in the sense of just that emotion that I genuinely felt that well, I like, really, really believed. It's like that when you, you truly are losing control of your emotion, you're in that moment and you've, you've, whether you're hugging someone, you're, you're shrieking, you're crying, whatever it is, right? It's this, it's this outward pouring of emotion. And yep. here's something I, I'll just share. Like, I don't think I've ever experienced it. I've seen it. I've seen it. I've never experienced it, right? And so as a fan, that's that, that when you have, when you see that amount of passion for a team or for a result, man, does it want you, don't, don't you want to just get involved? Like, don't you just want to find your own club and find that, that, that moment right and in the only thing i could think of in my past that would even come close to that and i wasn't in a pub i wasn't surrounded by other people who were watching the game i wasn't at the game would the only thing that could come to mind would be canada winning the gold cup at the olympics in hockey in 2002 we hadn't won it in 50 years we we felt like we should win it every year that's just how we are in this country right and that was where i remember just crying i I don't remember why i was just like (laughs) well my god we won like we won right like it was just this weird kind of emotional moment i i i die i would i would die for a moment like that right it's 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 such a unique moment if you could bottle it you would not be able to keep it in stock because it's the, the thing is that that's the great thing that that sport gives you i mean god knows you you, you never just have these highs because the only reason you can have these highs is because you have had all the lows if you're a team that wins the league every year, year in, year out, it becomes the same. The year after that, Arsenal beat Aston Villa in the FA Cup final 3-0. It was nowhere near it. It was just a, ah, that's good to know. Well done. Especially going down 2-0 early where that whole energy gets sucked right out of you. And I've been in those moments, you know, where it's, you're going to a game, 
whatever sport it is and you, your, your your energy is there you're positive you're excited you've had a couple of drinks had a snack you're with some friends whatever it is then you get scored on early and suddenly you're just like why am i here like you know not the yeah. why am i here but just oh is this is this going to be it again like is am i not going to get that moment that i've been that i'm hoping for all day that i've been thinking of before i went to bed the night before right yeah and i think that yeah it's definitely and i mean you're nervous before it if it's a big game you're always nervous anyway i mean even even a league game if if we're playing united if we're playing spurs chelsea if we're playing city liverpool i'm always nervous before it let's be honest about it the past few years i've been nervous before most games and um, but in particular, these big ones. I mean, even if I think of the the Spurs game this year, um, winning winning two one, um, I was I I was bouncing around the place. I was off work the next day, and I can remember recording a video and sending it to one of the guys in work of me jumping up and down downstairs, going, "What do you think of Tottenham? Absolutely <laughs> losing it." That was a league game that we had just won, but it was it meant something. I was nervous beforehand. I was nervous throughout the game, so when that result finally comes in it's just a release you know it's just the and yeah i mean that's that's we, why we love sport what we do to ourselves as sports fans like right like like as, as a supporter and living and dying with this club and 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 hoping for the best preparing you know hopefully not for the worst you're you're in this moment of 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 you're really it's extreme anxiety it's a little bit of stress that we put on ourselves but we absolutely adore it yeah, I mean, if you say it to somebody who doesn't follow sports, they don't they don't get it. They don't get why the the nerves are there, why the emotion are there. But then there's also the why would you intentionally and in full knowingly put yourself through that? <laughs> and it's like, look, it's it's worth it in the end. That's that's what I would say. When we beat Absolutely. United last season, one 0 first time winning at Old Trafford, and I don't know how many years before it, I was just buzzing, and the, throughout the whole game, I was a nervous wreck. You know, I like herself was looking at me going, it's it's okay. And I'm like, it's not, it's not okay. It's not okay. It's and just I can, nerves. I can attest to this. Like me and Simon are, are, are good friends. And so often on the days where there's an Arsenal game, he's very quiet. You know, he suddenly doesn't have a lot of time to chat. You know, he's, he's like, oh, there's an Arsenal game on. I gotta, I gotta get ready for that. You know, whatever that routine is, you know. And then by the end of the game, We'll chat, but I'll know what the result is immediately. <laughs> Whether I yeah. usually I'm watching it and I know, but you know, you ride or die with that team, and you take your emotion with it too, right? I think that's just it's part of the ride, part of the ride. Yeah, uh, you, I wouldn't have it any other way because, as I said, you don't get the highs without those lows. Um, so you need those nerves, you need everything that goes with it. That said, a cardiologist would probably disagree with me on what I'm doing to my body, <laughs> but I enjoy it. Yeah, well, that's there's worse things in the world. Let's say. Here, here's a question for you. So we talked a bit about your 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 favorite moments. Let's unpack a little bit of the other box, the the alternative box to that. What are some of your biggest moments of heartbreak? Your biggest nightmare as a, as an Arsenal fan that you can remember? Barcelona Champions League final, Chelsea Europa League final. Um, definitely stand out. Uh, I in, in particular the Chelsea one because it's more recent so that wound is still still open and i can remember the excitement i had all day i'm like here we go european final this is massive and it was abysmal it words cannot describe how poor the performance was and 
Oh, it, it broke my heart. It broke my heart. And I remember the the year before that, we no, were knocked out by Atletico in the semi-final. And I can remember the first leg, uh, Vesalco got sent off for, for Atletico. And it was uh, we were 11 against 10. And the emotions that I had in that game even, where I was saying, we got to capitalize now. We have to capitalize. We have to. And for the game, we didn't and ended up losing in the second leg. But yeah, that the Chelsea one is definitely probably the it, it's definitely the most recent so it's it's the, as i said it's the most open wound obviously Bar- barcelona that is huge i think a few seasons ago um when we didn't qualify for the champions league it was another one we we beat everton on the last day of the season i think kashelny got sent off but it was it was out of our hands we didn't qualify for the champions league and this was my first time going wow we're not in the champions league and that was a a shock because I all my life was used to seeing us playing in the Champions League. So that was a different type of emotion <laughs> in the sense that it wasn't this immediate heartbreak, but it was a realization that, oh, things aren't where they were. Um, and then last season, um, to win the FA Cup, which was incredible just to get into Europe, or the season before last, apologies. And then last season, the season just gone, not having any European football when up until the 70th minute of the match, it potentially looked like we were going to have it. Um, with the way the result was going in the Leicester Spurs game, and we were beating Brighton, and I was running around downstairs chanting Nikolai Pepe's name, just going, yes, we're going to do it. We're going to pull it out of the bag. I didn't care if it was the European Conference League or whatever it was. It would have meant that we maintained staying in Europe as a streak, and then that just got taken away. And the fact that it was Spurs winning that took it, it was just no. Um, but yeah, there's 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 a lot of individual ones. Um, there was the Eduardo leg break. There was the Ramsey leg break where all of a sudden you go, my God. Um, there was even um, when Fabrice Muamba, you know, this was a, a youth player at Arsenal at that time that he collapsed on the pitch. Um, there's still a link to Arsenal there. You know, it's a horrific event, and I think regardless of who you were supporting, it was there. But this was somebody who was like, oh, he was an Arsenal player. You know, this that it this happened sticks in, your, sticks in your mind, right? Yeah, there's just that little thing where that you know that's what what happens. That's what you think of and stuff. So, yeah, there's there, there are a lot of a lot of moments that that suck. I'll be honest. Um, and I could I could go through individual matches where you know, like anytime we lose to Spurs, it breaks my heart. You know, There's a question that, for you, actually. There's oh a question from Jostic here. He's wondering what you think about the, the Amazon series. So for those who don't know, the next All or Nothing is an Arsenal All or Nothing. What do you think of cameras in the locker room for your team? I'm terrified. <laughs> <laughs> if, it's, if it goes, if the season plays out well, it's fantastic. Because you're getting to see the good moments. But it will be a very difficult watch if we have a poor season to relive all of those moments. Um, like I, I love the idea of going behind the scenes. I love the idea of seeing all of that. So that part I cannot wait for. But I just think that there's there's so much at stake that if we don't have a good season and I get to see all of that, that I will be going, why did this happen? Why did we let certain things happen? Because I can guarantee if we have a poor season, there are going to be events throughout the season that'll be that'll be marked. And looking back on that, whatever it might be going, how do we let that happen? 
why did that happen? Who said that person could do this? Why did they allow this person to do that? Whatever it might be, I think it'll just add so much fuel to the fire. And let's be honest about it. The Arsenal fan base as a whole, if I'm painting it with the one brush, is a fickle, fickle fan base. It, it, that, uh, if you go online and look at some of the comments from Arsenal fans, there's a, so much entitlement to, to so many things. And it doesn't represent the, a lot of the true fans. But it's just, I know well that if something goes wrong in that season and that series comes out, there will be an unmerciful backlash against whoever was involved in that, whether it be player, staff, board, whoever. It's going to be, you know, just incredible, the, the backlash that's going to be there from, from certain, um, I suppose, areas of fans. Here's a question for you. Does the risk of bringing the cameras in, does the risk of having a bad season in front of the cameras, does that balance out with the, the, the possibility of also having a great season? in front of cameras and also maybe be being able as as noted in chat here is a good point from jostic you know an arteta non-believer could possibly see arteta in a new light seeing them as a person and as as before you answer i'll just say as somebody who you know is not a spurs fan i watched the the all or nothing on on spurs and i grew to know the players differently than i did the way they were presented on tv i grew to know the, the coaches a little bit differently obviously there's still edits there's still presented on a tv show so i always take it with a grain of salt but it's interesting when you humanize somebody or humanize an athlete or a coach and suddenly it's harder to get a little bit more angry at them or, or kind of throw that that normal kind of the banter at a player going oh you know you know he had a tough night last night i saw it on the show you know it, where where do you do you think it's a balance of 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 good good and bad or is it purely all risk for for these cameras to be in there no there's definitely look it's uh, the, but what i feel is that if it goes well i think that there will be a gain but i think that if it goes badly there will be a far worse backlash i think there's much more on the line negatively than there is positively and i definitely agree that like that if somebody doesn't back arteta that it, you mentioned there that it could humanize them. That's fantastic. But if somebody is on the fence or doesn't and something goes wrong, it will certainly demonize. Absolutely. Um, and I think that if you've got a, you know, or if people are looking back and there's a striker goes in a barren spell and they're looking back and there's clips of this in the way that it's obviously not going to show everything, but it's going to show the best that's there for TV. So if they show a part of Arteta having a chat with Aubameyang, for example, after he's got a few games without scoring the head seems gone whatever it might be if they don't show the right scene there both of them can come out in such a poor light whereas the other 95 percent of the time that the cameras might have been rolling or not rolling it could have been the complete opposite of it yeah. it's you know it's you have to remember that they're they're trying to put on the best show they're not trying to tell the truest story yeah. no matter what and um, what i will say is arteta's experienced it before he was at That's Man true. City when they did it. I would assume it was he would have been asked if this was being done. He must feel comfortable with it. He also must feel comfortable that the representation that was given in that was pretty accurate. But that was a bit easy when it was the Man City team that, I'm trying to think, was that the Centurions? I can't remember. It was probably a bit easier than a team who are going through a massive rebuild and are before a ball is even kicked are under absolute massive pressure yeah i think 
that's a good point is that it for for the clubs that have been featured up until this point i think most of them have been on an upward trajectory or already been in that kind of upper echelon or in the in terms of their results and where they were finishing in the league arsenal really is a you get to watch a rebuild yeah 100% and i think as well as that too there's no european football with arsenal this year so there's going to be X amount of games that they're not covering. So do you get a better insight into the preparation being put into each week for the Premier League? Because the cameras are going to be rolling for the same length of time, but there's going to be less games and less results that they would be they would be impacting on. So that, that'll be interesting to see. And I know like, I, as soon as it's out, I mean, I cannot wait. When I get a release date, I, I'll probably book that day off work and I'll be like, here I go, because I don't want to see a meme online before yep. i've seen it myself you know, you know so. the memes are coming like there's oh. no way to stop that that just happens now i mean <laughs> they, they they're they're happening already and they haven't even started the cameras you know so <laughs> i think that um yeah i think i will i cannot wait for it i mean in pre-season now arsenal always put up um, a lot of training videos and the guys getting back to fitness and stuff and i will watch every single one of them i will watch all of the drills that they're doing just these little things and i love it so to get this type of access it's like it's amazing but it's terrifying and actually sir grunt just corrected me here in the chat he is correct leads could be considered a rebuild so they did kind of cover a little bit of a rebuild before as it was the beginning of the bielsa uh era there but i think this is a little bit unique in the sense that leads was building from a much lower place of expectation i think because they were in the championship when they started moving up whereas arsenal I think in the eyes of many, and especially Arsenal supporters, I think you'd agree is is a top six team. They're the big. They're part of the big six, and so they're not seen any other way. Yeah, I mean, the, the difference is that Leeds were after years of turmoil and financial trouble, and continuing to grow. And certainly, it it, it was certainly a rebuild. But you know, if they didn't do X, Y, and Z, it could have still been considered a, a success. I think with Arsenal you're basically at a situation where you're the, the club is falling down onto a trampoline right now and it's a case of does it sink down or does it bounce back and yeah. you know that that's where it's at and if we bounce back and it's documented it's going to be amazing it's going to be fantastic but um look i'm looking forward to it regardless i you know i'd be lying if i didn't say it it's it's you know it's it's, it's all the drama you know it's regardless <laughs> i'm gonna love that you know everybody loves the gossip so i think that that's going to be there regardless but there is definitely a fear of how many neutrals and arsenal fans will perceive certain things but remembering that they're always going to try and put on the best show yeah, I think that's what you have to remember with any of these shows is they are going to edit to make it entertaining. They are going to try and focus on things. And as part of any drama, whether it's real life or a, a show, we like to see conflict. So exactly. in general, like to see conflict in a show like that, you're probably going to see some of it. So I, the, I think the fear, the hesitation around it is warranted. But at the same time. I totally get the excitement of being like, I get to see all these players and places. Yeah, like, you know, right? Like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Conversations. Uh, but it's just, you know, when you see them you know, like pulling pranks, just having a laugh with each other, you realize that, all right, they've got all the money, they've got all the ability, they've got everything, but there is still just a human being there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that if you took the name away and you walked past the street, you wouldn't know who they are. They would know, you know, it's, it's, it's nothing. So, uh, yeah, that, that part I will look forward to 100%. Yeah. So moving on a little bit from the show, 
Um, let's talk a little bit about Arsenal in the next next uh, Premier League season that's coming up. They've obviously made a few transfers. Um, what what do you think of the transfers that they've made so far? If you want to maybe talk about Ben White to start, obviously the big the big money purchase uh, so far. A little bit of English tax added, of course. What do you think of the Ben White uh, signing? So, but look, we're assuming it's 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 all done and dusted, and certainly <laughs> I have a you know let's just say it's done. You know, cough, <laughs> cough, cough. But yeah, I, I look. I, all the reports seem to say that look, it's pending a medical, um, which is obviously delayed because he was with um, with England in the Euros and stuff. So there doesn't seem to be any red flags, but um, it could come back to bite us. So I'm going to put in that little that little caveat there on that, just to be Fair. safe. Um, I I I quite like the signing. Um, the price is it higher than? You see, it's one of those ones that a player's worth isn't judged by the buying club; it's judged by the selling club. What is the number that you need to pay for that club in order for them to release a player of, of of their contract? And as a buying club, it's up to you to decide what is the most that you're willing to pay for that. And if those expectations don't line up, then the deal doesn't happen. I think you saw it with, even when Arsenal went for Buendia, I think that Villa came in with a higher bid and Arsenal said, no, that's not the level that we're comfortable with. Which, while some people will say, oh, that's not showing enough ambition, it's also being sensible. You can't just continue to bid for a player if you feel that it's going to be more expensive than what you're willing to pay and you've got that risk-reward with it. And the risk-reward comes with every player regardless of of transfer fee or regardless of value, experience, or anything that goes with it. But with Ben White, I think I think 50 million is a lot of money. But for a 23-year-old player, I think because of his age, because of his nationality, because of the fact there's always English tax, you're minimalizing the risk that's there so you've got ben whitey signing a four-year deal if things go really well you've got two years into it and everything is going fantastically you time down to a long-term contract and he gets a five-year deal from that if he sees that out then he'll be at the club for seven years okay now the chances are he's not going to just go through that and have the contract released he would be sold before then or the contract would be extended again so there's definitely a chance that he could be at the club for 10 years and if you look at that at 50 million for a player, then if he's at the club for 10 years and you put it that that's 5 million a year plus wages for that time, it's a good deal. Because if you signed a player like Thomas Partey, for example, who was signed for 45 million, but he's four years older when he signed. So the chances are that you're going to end up paying more per year if you're breaking it down over that. The other side of it is that if things don't work out, I don't think you'd get your 50 million back but I think that you might potentially get 30 million back, 35 million back. If that happens, you've spent 10 or 15 million, you've lost 10 or 15 million, but you have recuperated a lot against it as well. There's potential add-ons that mightn't have been matched then if that's the way. So you're, again, you're saying, well, it costs us 10 million, which obviously is a lot of money, but you haven't lost the 50 million. You've just lost a percentage of it. And if it goes extremely well and it gets bought by a better club, you could then even potentially make a profit on top of it. If we saw Van Dyke go for 80 million, Harry Maguire go for um, 80 million, why wouldn't a player, if they exceed, if he exceeded that and gone to it, go for that that level of money again in the future? In which case you said, well, 50 million was good. You got four or five years out of him and then managed to make 30 million profit on top. So because of his age and the, and the fact that it could be a long-term signing, I'm not too worried about the price with that. If it was a 27 or 28-year-old player and at the exact same ability as Ben White now, 
then there's more concern because you don't have that sell-on value. And the chances are that their ceiling has been hit. Whereas I think that Ben White certainly has a ceiling above him. And I think that he is exactly the type of center half that, that Arteta wants. He, we lost David Luiz um, when his contract ended. David Luiz made Arsenal a better team, not for his defensive work, but from his build-up at the back. And it was massive to the way that we played. And anytime he wasn't there, you could see that we lacked it. We lacked somebody with the ability to play that cross-field ball, to turn defense into attack to all of a sudden cut out the midfield and go that bit more direct because we tend to pass too short. We tend to pass too short from left to right. And all of a sudden when the ball drops back to a center half like that, if they can play that ball behind the lines, because they will have time to play it, a midfielder more than likely is going to be closed down. The center half will have a bit more time to play that pass. A, A center half with a good passing range can add so much offensively to the team. And I think that's why Arteta wanted him. That's why he's gone for him. Um, and I think that when people are keep talking about Saliba, that's where he potentially doesn't feel he's as comfortable with them with that, whereas Ben White will offer that to him. So that's where my train of thought is. So I'm happy with it. I like it. It makes sense. And I do think that the, the risk versus reward is in our favor for it. Couple of there's a few questions flying around in chat. I'm just going to pick a couple of them out, or, or at least summarize them. So Grunge was pointing out, you know, the price for Tamori was 25 million, and now that was part of a loan agreement, um, I believe, that set that price previously. But his question is, do you think that Ben is twice as good as Tamori? Like this is purely a price-based question, right? Or is that something where Tamori is just not the type of player that Arteta was looking for? In your opinion. Yeah, I, I think when you do it like that, I, it's easy to go that well. That player has to be twice as good as that person, um, and everything that goes with it. But I mean, Rob Holding was two million. I don't think he's twenty-five times better the player than That's than true. Rob yeah. Holding is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I think that that negates it. Would Chelsea have sold him to Arsenal for twenty-five million? No. Probably if Arsenal not. wanted him, we would have had to pay fifty billion. Yeah. But he's not going to arrive. He's going to a different league. Um, he's going to a club where he wanted to make the deal. They wanted to make it happen. There might have been no other interest. So the price is going to be influenced by the fact that how many people are bidding on him. Whereas if, if Arsenal didn't go for Ben White, were there going to be other clubs that were willing to, to pay that much? Whereas if nobody was interested in him and there was one club that decided they were going to test the water, they might have got him cheaper. But there's, there's so many more factors that are there as opposed to just the value of the, the player uh, in terms of, oh, yeah, if they're this much, they're that good. If they're whatever amount, they're that good. It, I don't think it, it transfers exactly like that. Follow-up question for Grunge. <laughs> so Sir Grunge wants to know how you feel about their ability compared. Like, Do you think that they're, like, Tamori is a different type of player, a better type of player, or do you think that Ben White checks all the boxes? First? I think Chelsea were foolish to let go of Tamori. In, in my opinion, I liked it because he has... Like to me, Tamori had a lot of natural attributes. For a centre half, he was quick, which is massive. And um, he had a really good turn of pace. But I, I think from what from what I've seen, I prefer Ben White on the ball. Now I'm not going to say that I am an expert in him. My opinions of Ben White are based an awful lot on games that I would have seen. I would not have been watching every game. And if you looked at last season, Tamori didn't play as much. And I, I, which which baffled me, and I always thought he should have got more game time. In particular, before Lampard was sacked, when Chelsea weren't doing well, I was like, "Why are they not giving this guy a go?" When they signed Thiago Silva, I was like, "Is that needed?" Do you when you've got a guy there to that you want to continue to develop? So, I think I, I like Ben White's um, passing ability. 
I think that Tamori is probably quicker um, over the ground. That Not that Ben White's slow for a centre half. He's certainly quick enough. I think Tamori is certainly better in the air. That is not Ben White's strength. Um, for a centre half, he's pretty short. I think he's six foot six one. Um, so Tamori would definitely dominate him there. But I think it's what Tamori would lead to the build up, or what Ben White would lead to the build up play. The beginning of an attack, the offense, I think, is more where his value comes in, um, versus necessarily his ability to defend. He's like he doesn't tend to win a lot of tackles, but he tends to intercept the ball a lot. So he plays with a higher press. It just suits the way Arteta wants the defense to play. Um, so I think that it's, I think if you were going probably out and out defender, you would pick Tamori. Whereas I think if you were looking at the whole team play, Ben White offers you more than just that. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and I, I, I just wanted to to pull a little bit of the chat in there because obviously Sir Grunge, you know, great, great supporter of the show. He's a, he's an AC Milan fan. So I don't want to turn this into a Milan versus Arsenal <laughs> conversation, but I thought it was a nice, a nice little bit to talk about. And a one last point, which I always love to point out because I'm Canadian and I, I hold on to these things very dear. Tamori was born in Canada, folks. So yes, he's English. He plays for Canada or for England, but let's remember he could have, you know, he could have been the man for Canada. Anyway, <laughs> just throwing that out there. Uh, so that, that was, we've talked a little bit about Ben White. What are some of the other signings? I've, I've seen the, the, let me just bring it back up here. Sorry, I had a couple of notes. So there was two other signings, I think, that have been confirmed so far. There was Nuno Tavares and Lakonga or Lakonka. Yeah. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. What do you think of those two signings? What do they bring to Arsenal? What, what kind of holes are they filling? So, firstly, Tavares, he was he was done first. And I was I was quite happy with the deal. Um, mainly 8 million. Really good price. You're talking 8 million pounds for a 20-year-old left-back coming out of Benfica. Um, he doesn't have as many first-team games as a lot of the other players. But coming in at 21, he's, I think it was 25 games for Benfica. He's rapid. Absolutely lightning. Um they, from what I've read a lot about, people have been saying he does need to brush up on things. But I think at his age, that's fine because whoever we brought in at left back was never going to be the starter. Kieran Tierney was always going to start. When he is fit, Kieran Tierney will start, no matter what, no matter what the opposition is, no matter, oh, countering this threat, countering that threat, it will be Kieran Tierney. And I know there was a lot of links that we were going to go for Ryan Bertrand, which I thought made perfect sense. Because I was saying, like, Kieran Tierney's only 24 years of age. You know, are you going to bring somebody in to be his understudy at 24? He just signed a new five-year deal. You know, are they going to get that game time? We're not in Europe, so there's less rotation and everything that goes with it. So I thought bringing in somebody towards the end of their career would have made the most sense. Somebody in the 30s as the backup who would be going, you know what? Like Bertrand might have taken a two-year deal, decent money. You lose nothing at the end of it and you've got you know a lot of maturity there but the other side of it was if you weren't going at that end of the spectrum you had to go with somebody who was 18 19 20 21 years of age you couldn't bring somebody in, in their mid-20s who's in the prime of their career because they wouldn't get the game time whereas with Tavares now I think it certainly allows him room to develop and um, he's got to settle into a new country he's got to settle into a new new language a new way of playing and everything that goes with it and he can do that without the pressure of knowing that he will be relied on to be the starter and there will still be cup games he will still play um Tierney has a bit of an injury record so 
if he's giving it his all, it's nice to be able to make that change and bring somebody on. We needed somebody in that position. Again, 8 million risk-free. If he doesn't work out in two years' time, I cannot see how we do not get that back. And if it works out, fantastic. We've got two great left-back options. Um, with Lakonga then, Lakonga, I really like. Really like that signing. Um, I mean, he's 21 years of age. So he's a young man. But he's got 69 games in all competitions for Anderlecht. He was their captain since last December. He is exactly the profile that we are looking for. Um, and, and Ben White, very similar to, to Lukonga and all the players we've been linked with, and I'll go into it in a bit more in a bit, but they are all meeting this, this, this profile. So you've got a guy who's 21 years of age, who's got a high ceiling. He's not at his best now. He can continue to develop. He will be able to develop and be molded into the player that Arteta will want him to be in a system. He will already possess certain attributes, his ability to, to, to play a pass through the lines. Um, he likes to play a bit deeper. Um, he can do the box-to-box side of it. You know, could probably do a bit on the, on the defense, bit more on the defensive side if he is playing that deep role. But he's got a lot of maturity, he's got a lot of ability, and he's got a high ceiling. And again, coming in for, I think it's £17 million plus, plus add-ons, you don't lose money on that. Because you don't sell a 23, 24-year-old Belgian international who's previously been the captain of Anderlecht for less than that. Even if he doesn't hit the peak of his ceiling that he might reach, there is no way that if it doesn't work out and you do want to make a change, that a 24, 25-year-old Belgian international central midfielder isn't going to go for that money and more. And if it works out, you could have an absolute star in your hands. So again, risk-free. He's not going to be starting every game, though at the moment, the way things are with our central midfield options, who knows? But he's going to come in as an option, a rotation option, and he will be able to grow, develop into exactly the type of player that Arteta will want. And to have, a, to have been a captain at 21 years of age shows a lot about his character. So you back the guy to succeed. You back the guy to to back himself almost as well. Here's a question for you. And me, and, and, this is purely coming from someone who is not as in tune as connected to the club as you are. But what I saw with Arsenal the last couple of years, especially last year, is it just seemed like there wasn't, I don't know if it was the locker room accord or whether the leadership was lacking, but it just seemed to be frustration that we saw come out on the field sometimes. And whether it was frustration at other players or just the result of the game or just how things were going, it just seemed like there were certain games where the guys came off and you could you could feel the shoulders were were slumped and they just there was nobody there giving a slap on the back saying, "Hey, you know what? Like next game we got this or like there's that energy." And maybe that that by given that he was a captain so young is, is addressing some of that, right? Bringing in some experience, some maturity, even though the age, you wouldn't assume the maturity is there with most footballers. But here's a guy you're talking about a lot who seems to, to be bringing not only his skill set from a physicality, what he does on the field to, the, to, to his technical ability, but also his mental ability and his ability to keep guys in check and calm and lead in, in a way. 100%. And I think that you need that and it's it's not only maybe that how you can influence others but it's to hold yourself accountable and when Arteta first joined um it should be what 18 months ago no it'd be longer than that wouldn't it um that'd be two and a half years ago nearly at this stage no surely not 
the co- see, this is what had COVID has done COVID's to us. ruined our, everything. Our timeline, yeah. I have no idea. It feels like a decade ago. December COVID. 2019. December 2019, <laughs> I think. Um, I don't know what that is in months. But he he spoke an awful lot about the non-negotiables. And that was one of the things that I really, really bought into at the start, was that there was the non-negotiables with Arsenal, that everybody should be giving 110% at all times. Everybody should be trying to do these. To, to, they have certain standards that they need to hold themselves accountable for. Um, there's a lot of things in terms of the way that the, the football should be played and how we should go about a game that we have to do. We have to be, good, to be able to pass the ball. We have to be comfortable in possession. We, you know, we have to do these things because they're the non-negotiables. And that, I think, when you look at Lukonga as somebody coming in, he straight away ticks those boxes in terms of that's how he views himself. That's how he holds himself uh, accountable. I know Ben White, uh, I've, I've read a few articles where Arteta has been kind of saying that he sees him as future captain material. So he's bringing somebody in who will hold himself and others accountable, who won't slack on those non-negotiables. So I think that there's there's a reason that that type of player has been picked. Um, and they're young players, but they're young in age, not in experience. Um, and I think that that's, that's the big thing um, that he's looking for, is that profile of kind of 21 to 25 years of age, but with a lot of games under their belt, that they've, they've, they've been a pro for a long time. It actually leads me into the next kind of conversation that I wanted to have with you, which was around, it seems like Arsenal's transfer signing recruitment policy or, or process or whatever you want to call it, uh, project manager here. So, of course, I'm using the word process and policy. But anyway, uh, what's it seems like they've got a, a, a profile or a set of a set of attributes that they're looking for in a, each player that they're, they sign. Does it seem like there's a clear plan to rebuild under Arteta and Adu? At, if you had asked me this at the start of the transfer window, I would have been less certain than I am now. Now I'm beginning to see it and I'm making sense of it. I think that their hands are tied a small bit by we need players to leave before we can bring certain players in. Um, and there's a lot of players for sale in the squad. Um like if we look at if we look at go if we go through the team in goal, Leno is currently our starter. That's up for debate as to whether he will stay or, or go. I think that if they could get a decent bid in, they would be happy to replace him. But certainly a number two is needed because Runnerson is currently our number two and he's not up to up to scratch. And then after that, you're looking at Akonku who just signed a, his first professional deal, extending with the club. You, you need depth there, so we need a goalkeeper, but. We also need to sell off Runnerson there. You look at defenders, Bellerin apparently is, is, is on the way out. Kalasnach is, is set to go. So if Bellerin goes, we need a right back. Kalasnach won't need to be replaced because the virus has come in. Um, so if Bellerin goes, we need to bring in a right back. We want a new right back, but we can't bring one in with Bellerin, Cedric and Callum Chambers all at the club. So a lot of what we want to do, I think, is dictated on getting players out. Xhaka, Torreira and Michael and Niles are set, set to leave in midfield. But we need to bring in midfielders then on top of that. If Joe Willock goes out on loan, we're going to need potentially another one as well. Um, if you look at the wide positions, you've got William, who it didn't work. I mean, that deal just didn't work. It's just as simple <laughs> as that. I, when it happens, I went, you know what? 
let's see how it goes. I was I was quite happy with it, proven player and everything. It didn't work. Um, and then you look up front, we've got Aubameyang, Lacazette, and Nketiah won't sign a new deal, so he needs to go out. And Balogun just signed his first proper proper deal as well, um, long-term deal. So And there's talk of Lacazette potentially being sold. So there's, I think there is a plan, but it's going to depend on who can who we can get rid of because we can't end up in a situation with this huge bloated squad where we're paying the money to the players and we're not getting that back because we don't have European football and we don't need as deep a squad this season as we would if we did have European football because there isn't going to be as much chance to rotate and most players are going to have a full week every time anyway. So I think there is a plan and I think that when you look at the profiles that we've mentioned, if we look at Tavares, 21 years of age, we look at Lukonga, 21 years of age, and Ben White, 23 years of age, they're the, the deals that were, and again, we're going to caveat with Ben White, but assuming it goes through, that those are little done. Little asterisks there. Yeah, yeah exactly. Just, the, just, just up in the little corner. So Ben White has 163 uh, club games under his belt at 23 years of age. Lukonga, 69 at 21 years of age. If you look at the players that we've been linked with, James Madison, 24, 231 games. Aaron Ramsdale, 24, 123 games. For a goalkeeper as well, which obviously is generally a later blooming one. Manuel Locatelli, 23, 162 games. Tammy Abraham, 23, 209 games. Neves, 24, 269. Basuma, 24, 164 games. Uar, 23 years of age, 170 games. Udegaard, 22, 235 games. Even Buendia, who we were looking at, 24, 237 games. Everybody there is, Odegaard being 22, but he kind of broke on the scene at a very young age. We're talking 23, 24 years of age with an awful lot of games under their belt. So that while they're young in age, they do have a lot of experience. They're players who will be able to take account of what they do. Um, and I think that's what they're looking at. If you look at the squad at the moment, the average age is about 24, 25 um, and I think when Willian was brought in last season, he was brought in to add experience because there are some of those younger players. But I think that when we're looking at the squad and we're looking at the best performers, the best performers have been young. And I think it's about keeping that, that you know, you don't want to alienate certain groups or anything. And I think that bringing in professionals at that age with a lot of game time under their belt makes the most sense for uh, squad harmony. And for bringing in somebody that doesn't need to be brought up to the level that you need, that can literally hit the ground running. It does seem to me like if if we're stepping back a little bit and we're thinking about why you're recruiting these types of players or why Arsenal, not you. I mean, unless you become the manager anytime soon, I'll be oh, get me in to continue to have these one-on-one -on -one <laughs> chats. What what access that would be? Um, but it just seems to me like they're like, okay, we don't want to go full rebuild where we're bringing kids with no experience. We want to bring in youthful players who still have upside, who have played games. They, they're experienced enough to know what being a professional is all about because that's something that people have to learn. And then you're also building for the future. Like, it seems to me like they're really rebuilding. Like, like if I'm stepping back, I'm looking at a two-year sort of transitional. This year, depending on who you can sell, there's probably going to be guys you're going to be putting in the shop window, per se, this season, yeah. right? Where they're going to get some games, they're going to get some play with the intention of showing this player is good come by him so that I can put in this younger guy who's got some games and is ready to go. Right. Like it seems to me like there's buy-in from the ownership. There's buy-in from the organization, but the question behind the question that ultimately comes from this is that, is it are fans and supporters going to be patient enough for their plan to be executed fully? Or are we going to hear 
you know, five to 10 games into the season, if things don't go well, Arteta needs to be out. Because we heard it last year. There, there's massive pressure on him. Um, if if you Okay, there's, regardless of how it goes, you are going to have those fans. There are people who have made up their mind on Arteta and won't be swayed. They, these people you can't you can't reason with. You can't reason with madness, okay? Um, like, there was... I was very much bought into Arteta towards... I'm going to say maybe it was at February time this year, I started to lose faith altogether. Um, being straight out about it, we'd a few bad results and I was going you know what just when it looked like we're turning a corner I can't see where it was going and as the season progressed then towards the end it, it did pick up again um, on, on, on the back of that and I said okay well let's you know what the, the players are bought in the players see an awful lot more of it than we do so I'm going to back the, the players that generally if the players don't think a plan makes sense they will let it know straight away because it's their careers at the end of the line um, so I think that there's a buy-in from the players which suggests that there is a, a plan in place and it's getting the right players in now in terms of the transfer window to to support that. But there's huge pressure on Arteta because we don't have European football. He's got a full week between games to make sure that we are prepared as possible for that game. We don't have distractions. It should reduce injuries. We can't be blaming fatigue. We can't be looking at travelling. There's massive pressure on him to deliver on the back of that. And I think that he has to deliver on the back of that. We can, if you look at Chelsea finished eighth in the league a few years ago, and I think they won the league the year after. I don't think we're going to win the league. It was a complete anomaly that they finished eighth that year. It was just completely mental. Actually, or was it the Champions League they won while finishing eighth? I think it might have been under Di Matteo. But the, the, the idea of that happening, it isn't going to happen with Arsenal. That's, that's not the level. We... We didn't go from being first, second, third to dropping down to eighth, where you can bounce back quite quickly. We have been steadily on a decline. So I think, yes, there's pressure. And I think that, yes, we need to start well to avoid the additional pressure coming in. And I do think that getting the signings right is key. And one of the things that we're looking at there, if we look at the Ben White deal, Premier League player linked with James Madison, Premier League player, Aaron Ramsdale, Premier League player, Tammy Abraham, Premier League player, Ruben Nevis, East Basuma, Udegaard even after being on loan last year, all have Premier League experience. And I think that, that there's a reason that we're looking at players in the Premier League because you don't have to worry about the betting in period. If we look at Thomas Partey last season, he was very up and down as the season went on. He had to acclimatize to a new to a new country, to a new club. You know, th these are human beings. If I move to, to Winnipeg right now, there is going to be a settling in period for me getting used to how everything works, cultural differences and everything that goes with it on my day-to-day -day life. So, you know, that's always going to be weighing on you. And you're looking at this and you're looking at potentially, you know, people a lot, a lot younger than me, like Lakonga, 21 years of age, coming to live in England for the first time. There's going to be a betting in period. You can't rely on him, I don't think, from the get-go. And Thomas Partey is in desperate need of a midfield partner. So is that why the Premier League experience, the, you know, they're playing against the same players they played against last year. They're coming up against the same players. Is that going to help with that smooth transition and getting you a good foundation? If you look at Liverpool, the business that they did over the, the past few years in terms of since Klopp took over... I think that their transfer policy has been one of the best. And what they did was they used a heavily data-driven approach to get the best players in the league, essentially. 
They brought in Van Dyke, who made a massive difference. They brought in Robertson at eight million. Um, they brought in Sadio Mane. You know, these type of players that really made an impact were in the Premier League already. And I think that it's there's there's a big thing about the the draw. And I think games like Football Manager and games like FIFA, you know, people playing career modes, and you want you can get players from anywhere, and you want to get a player from a foreign league seems more exotic regardless of it like when you see the name ben white it doesn't excite people it it doesn't whereas if if he was a brazilian player playing in italy or playing in spain right now that we had signed people would be more exciting if every single detail was exactly the same but he wasn't called ben white from brighton people would be more excited i mean here's the thing though in my opinion like if, if, if ben white has a great season we're not going to hear his name that often you know what I mean? Like, it's not going to be like everyone's going to be babbling about Ben White. They're still going to be talking about the flashy players, the players who make noise. Ben White comes in and plays a solid game every game. You know, you're going to have those few conversations where, hey, Ben White's been a great buy, and then everyone moves on. Like, it doesn't seem like uh, some of those kind of, I don't know what you want to call it, Premier League vets that you're talking about, those people who've been in the league and have people, they, they always kind of get almost like undermined. Like, oh, you've been here before. Like, you're not going to make a big impact. But in, in, you flip that on its head it's like no they will they don't need they're not coming in to make an impact they're coming in to slot right in and not make waves and not create a problem and not you know need to be handheld all the way through the process they're like oh yeah i've been in this league i've worked a job in this club i used to work for that club i know some of you guys let's get to work exactly and if you look at Arsenal, i think last season we finished with the third best defense in the league and we're, we're our biggest buy so far will be a center back and that goes back to what I said earlier. It's not necessarily about his defensive ability. It's what we can get at the build-up because our shape under Ateta has massively improved, though it has been at the cost of our creativity going forward, um, where the number of goals scored has been, it was at its lowest for 20-odd years. Um, so Smith Rowe signing a new contract after coming in there, that's where your creativity is going to be there now. He's going to have another, I mean, he's going to, he's going to want more goals and assists this year. They're working on it heavily in training. It's one of the things that they've been saying. He wants to add goals to his game and stuff. So I think that the next stage now is just adding those players that are going to help create that. And that's why I think we do need another number 10. We do need a, a midfield partner for Thomas Partey. Um, is a is a major requirement, especially with Xhaka leaving. I think that's going to leave a massive hole there. So bringing somebody in with experience in the league in one of those positions makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So given what we've talked about, what we know is done so far, what are your what are your expectations for Arsenal this year? What's a good season for you as a supporter this year? Right now, we have to get back into Europe. I think Arteta spoke about the non-negotiables. That's the non-negotiable. If Arsenal finish out, and I'm going to say outside of the top six, I, I it will have been a failure of a season. When you have every other team who's vying for those places having so many extra games, then we need we need to take advantage of that. We actually need to use the fact that we don't have Europe as a distraction to build up an identity within the team as to how we play and to go into each Premier League game full of fitness. And if we're playing Spurs on a Sunday because they've had a game on a Thursday over in you know, Eastern Europe, and they've had to have that travel, even if they don't play the same players and everything, it's still there, it's still taken out of the players, it's still something that they've had to concentrate on in training and everything, 
they're what we need to be taking advantage of and we need to make the most of it. I think if we look at the way we finished the season last year from the turn of the year um, or just before it on uh, on St. Stephen's Day or Boxing Day, um, it would have been the Chelsea game where we won 3-1. It was the first game that Smith Rowe started. He was introduced. We changed to the 4-2-3-1. From that point until the end of the season, and I hate doing this, but if you look at that section, I think we would have finished third in the league. Um, it, it was second, third, I think, thereabouts because the form improved so much. We need to carry that into this season and start like that and just get that bit more ruthless and that bit more clinical in front of goal. And if we do that, we can go top six, top four. I mean, top four is certainly realistic if we can perform and get the results that we did at the back end of last season. If Nicolas Pepe can start next season the way he finished last season, he's going to be absolutely phenomenal. He's going to be there. If Aubameyang can get his shooting boots back on, and start taking those chances that he has done throughout his career. He's got a goal every other game throughout his career, regardless of the club that he has been at. You cannot write him off after one poor season. And if those goals start to come, you've got a 20-odd goal striker straight away. If Pepe scores the way he has been doing it, you're going to be getting 15 goals out of him. Then you've got Smith Rowe you want to chip in, Saka you want to chip in, and we need to get more goals from midfield as well. And that's what led, it, led us down a lot last year as well. Um, I think... I think we got six goals from midfield last season. That's not good enough. You you want to have a player getting nearly six goals. You know, Partey didn't score. Xhaka got one, I think. And then he got a couple. Um, and then we had Willock who went out on loan and got seven in a row. So we need to get goals. We need to get goals from midfield and we need our strikers to take our chances. If we can add that to the defensive shape that we had, it's definitely plausible. Top six is a must. Top four is achievable if we make the right signings, but I wouldn't expect it. That's it's interesting, you know. I, I top six or it's a failure, basically, is 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 the response, and that that's that's the kind of ambition that you would expect given the history of this club, right? I think that's that's yeah. fair to say. Yeah, well, it should be top four or it's a failure or win the league or it's a failure. But because of the way things are, we'll go top six. I'm, anything I'm trying to peel back a little bit of that bias because I know your first answer is top of the league, baby. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I got it. But hey, Simon, big thank you for coming on the show today. I really appreciate your time. It has been really, really, really fantastic talking to you about Arsenal. I always learn a lot when I'm talking to you, whether it's on the show, whether we're just hanging out. So I really do appreciate your time. For those who want to stay connected, maybe want to send you a DM or drop it, drop drop you a, a, a hello. Where can people say hi to you these days? Uh, yeah, Twitter basically. So it's into underscore row underscore Z um, is the Twitter handle, um, and I'm trying to put a bit more out there football wise um, in terms of get more regular posts out about certain topics and have it primarily focused on 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 football um and i'll try to be as unbiased as as i can with everything that i that i post and a lot of the preseason games i've been watching i've been given my my halftime thoughts and little bits and pieces like that um and i want to continue that into the into the new season um so that i'll be hopefully putting up more updates on regular premier league games etc and it'd be great to to chat with people get their thoughts and continue that engagement well, really do appreciate it. I know I'm always locked in, but whatever you're saying, I can always look at uh, what's going on with Arsenal. I wake up and I can see, right? That's all, all the responses are already there, ready to go. But massive thank you, Simon. 
really do appreciate you. My pleasure. On and we'll uh, we'll have to have you on again to talk a little bit of our Arsenal uh, in the coming days and weeks. Yeah, let's get closer to the season. Let's do it, yeah? See if uh, my, my, uh, my views have changed. Yeah, we'll bring it back. You know, here's what you said. No, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. But thank you so much, Simon. Have a, have a great rest of your day. And the same to you. Thanks very much, man. Best of luck. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, guys. This has been a really, really great episode of Scoot Talk Sports. This is episode three already. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your time with me. You can find all the previous episodes on your favorite podcast app just by searching Scoot Talk Sports. You can also find us on YouTube if you're interested in watching the old video on demand. But hey, this episode is recorded live on Twitch Sports, and you can actually be part of the episode by following at twitch.tv slash S-C-O-O-T-R. That's Scooter. And joining us on Monday and Fridays at 12 p.m. Central Standard Time. You can always connect with me on Discord, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. If you want to find out all the ways and all the links, just go to Twitter, search underscore S-C-O-O-T-R, and you can find my profile and click on the link. Let's talk soon. Thanks again so much for listening.